Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 17 and 18 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 17 A Costly Recapture As the speaker ceased, he turned to leave the apartment by the door where I was standing, but I needed to wait no longer. I had heard enough to fill my soul with dread, and stealing quietly away I returned to the courtyard by the way I had come. My plan of action was formed upon the instant, and crossing the square and the bordering avenue upon the opposite side I soon stood within the courtyard of Tal Hajis. The brilliantly lighted apartments on the first floor told me where first to seek, and advancing to the windows I peered within. I soon discovered that my approach was not to be the easy thing I had hoped, for the rear rooms bordering the court were filled with warriors and women. I then glanced up at the stories above, discovering that the third was apparently unlighted, and so decided to make my entrance to the building from that point. It was the work of but a moment for me to reach the windows above, and soon I had drawn myself within the sheltering shadows of the unlighted third floor. Fortunately, the room I had selected was untenanted and creeping noiselessly to the corridor beyond I discovered a light in the apartments ahead of me. Reaching what appeared to be a doorway, I discovered that it was but an opening upon an immense inner chamber which towered from the first floor, two stories below me, to the dome-like roof of the building, high above my head. The floor of this great circular hall was thronged with chieftains, warriors, and women and at one end was a great raised platform upon which squatted the most hideous beast I had ever put my eyes upon. He had all the cold, hard, cruel, terrible features of the green warriors, but accentuated and debased by the animal passions to which he had given himself over for many years. There was not a mark of dignity or pride upon his bestial countenance while his enormous bulk spread itself out upon the platform where he squatted like some huge devil-fish, his six limbs accentuating the similarity in a horrible and startling manner. But the sight that froze me with apprehension was the sight of Dejah Thoris and Sola standing there before him, and the fiendish leer of him as he let his great protruding eyes gloat upon the lines of her beautiful figure. She was speaking, but I could not hear what she said, nor could I make out the low grumbling of his reply. She stood there erect before him, her head high held, and even at the distance I was from them I could read the scorn and disgust upon her face, as she let her haughty glance rest without sign of fear upon him. She was indeed the proud daughter of a thousand jeddaks, every inch of her dear, precious little body. 
so small, so frail beside the towering warriors around her, but in her majesty dwarfing them into insignificance. She was the mightiest figure among them, and I verily believe that they felt it. Presently Talhadjus made a sign that the chamber be cleared, and that the prisoners be left alone before him. Slowly the chieftains, the warriors, and the women melted away into the shadows of the surrounding chambers, and Dejah Thoris and Sola stood alone before the Jeddak of the Tharks. One chieftain alone had hesitated before departing. I saw him standing in the shadows of a mighty column, his fingers nervously toying with the hilt of his greatsword and his cruel eyes bent in implacable hatred upon Talhadjus. It was Tars Tarkas, and I could read his thoughts as they were an open book for the undisguised loathing upon his face. He was thinking of that other woman, who, forty years ago, had stood before this beast, and could I have spoken a word into his ear at that moment, the reign of Talhadjus would have been over. But finally he also strode from the room, not knowing that he left his own daughter at the mercy of the creature he most loathed. Talhadjus arose, and I, half fearing, half anticipating his intentions, hurried to the winding runway which led to the floors below. No one was near to intercept me, and I reached the main floor of the chamber unobserved taking my station in the shadow of the same column that Tars Tarkas had but just deserted. As I reached the floor, Talhadjus was speaking. "'Princess of Helium, I might wring a mighty ransom from your people, would I but return you to them unharmed. But a thousand times rather would I watch that beautiful face writhe in the agony of torture. It shall be long drawn out, that I promise you.' Ten days of pleasure were all too short to show the love I harbor for your race. The terrors of your death shall haunt the slumbers of the red men through all the ages to come. They will shudder in the shadows of the night as their fathers tell them of the awful vengeance of the green men. Of the power and might and hate and cruelty of Tal Hajus. But before the torture, you shall be mine for one short hour, and the word of that too shall go forth to Tardos Mors, Jeddak of Helium, your grandfather, that he may grovel upon the ground in the agony of his sorrow. Tomorrow the torture will commence. Tonight thou art Tar Hajus. Come. He sprang down from the platform and grasped her roughly by the arm but scarcely had he touched her than I leaped between them. My short sword, sharp and gleaming, was in my right hand. I could have plunged it into his putrid heart before he realized that I was upon him. But as I raised my arm to strike, I thought of Tars Tarkas, and with all my rage, with all my hatred, I could not rob him of that sweet moment for which he had lived and hoped all these long, weary years and so instead I swung my good right fist full upon the point of his jaw. Without a sound he slipped to the floor as one dead. In the same deathly silence I grasped Dejah Thoris by the hand, and motioning Sola to follow, we sped noiselessly from the chamber and to the floor above. 
Unseen, we reached a rear window, and with the straps and leather of my trappings I lowered first Sola and then Dejah Thoris to the ground below. Dropping lightly after them, I drew them rapidly around the court in the shadows of the buildings, and thus we returned over the same course I had so recently followed from the distant boundary of the city. We finally came upon my thoats in the courtyard where I had left them, and placing the trappings upon them we hastened through the building to the avenue beyond. Mounting, Sola upon one beast, and Dejah Thoris behind me upon the other, we rode from the city of Thark through the hills to the south. Instead of circling back around the city to the northwest and toward the nearest waterway which lay so short a distance from us, we turned to the northeast and struck out upon the mossy waste across which, for two hundred dangerous and weary miles, lay another main artery leading to Helium. No word was spoken until we had left the city far behind, but I could hear the quiet sobbing of Dejah Thoris as she clung to me with her dear head resting against my shoulder. "'If we make it, my chieftain, the debt of Helium will be a mighty one greater than she can ever pay you. And should we not make it," she continued, the debt is no less, though Helium will never know, for you have saved the last of our line from worse than death." I did not answer, but instead reached to my side and pressed the little fingers of her I loved, where they clung to me for support. And then, in unbroken silence, we sped over the yellow moonlit moss, each of us occupied with his own thoughts. For my part I could not be other than joyful had I tried, with Dejah Thoris' warm body pressed close to mine, and with all our unpassed danger my heart was singing as gaily as though we were already entering the gates of Helium. Our earlier plans had been so sadly upset that we now found ourselves without food or drink and I alone was armed. We therefore urged our beasts to a speed that must tell on them sorely before we could hope to sight the end of the first stage of our journey. We rode all night and all the following day with only a few short rests. On the second night both we and our animals were completely fagged, and so we lay down upon the moss and slept for some five or six hours, taking up the journey once more before daylight. All the following day we rode, and when, late in the afternoon, we had sighted no distant trees, the mark of the great waterways throughout all Barsoom, the terrible truth flashed upon us. We were lost. Evidently we had circled, but which way it was difficult to say, nor did it seem possible with the sun to guide us by day and the moons and stars by night. At any rate no waterway was in sight and the entire party was almost ready to drop from hunger, thirst, and fatigue. Far ahead of us, and a trifle to the right, we could distinguish the outlines of low mountains. These we decided to attempt to reach, in the hope that from some ridge we might discern the missing waterway. Night fell upon us before we reached our goal, and almost fainting from weariness and weakness, we lay down and slept. I was awakened early in the morning by some huge body pressing close to mine, and opening my eyes with a start I beheld my blessed old Woola snuggling close to me. 
The faithful brute had followed us across that trackless waste to share our fate, whatever it might be. Putting my arms about his neck, I pressed my cheek close to his. Nor am I ashamed that I did it, nor of the tears that came to my eyes as I thought of his love for me. Shortly after this Dejah Thoris and Sola awakened, and it was decided that we push on at once in an effort to gain the hills. We had gone scarcely a mile when I noticed that my thoat was commencing to stumble and stagger in a most pitiful manner, although we had not attempted to force them out of a walk since about noon of the preceding day. Suddenly he lurched wildly to one side and pitched violently to the ground. Dejah Thoris and I were thrown clear of him and fell upon the soft moss with scarcely a jar. But the poor beast was in a pitiable condition, not even being able to rise, although relieved of our weight. Sola told me that the coolness of the night when it fell, together with the rest, would doubtless revive him, and so I decided not to kill him, as was my first intention, as I had thought it cruel to leave him alone there to die of hunger and thirst. Relieving him of his trappings, which I flung down beside him, we left the poor fellow to his fate, and pushed on with the one thoat as best we could. Sola and I walked, making Dejah Thoris ride, much against her will. In this way we had progressed to within about a mile of the hills we were endeavouring to reach, when Dejah Thoris, from her point of vantage upon the thoat, cried out that she saw a great party of mounted men filing down from a pass in the hills several miles away. Sola and I both looked in the direction she indicated, and there, plainly discernible, were several hundred mounted warriors. They seemed to be headed in a southwesterly direction, which would take them away from us. They doubtless were Thark warriors who had been sent out to capture us, and we breathed a great sigh of relief that we were traveling in the opposite direction. Quickly lifting Dejah Thoris from the thoat, I commanded the animal to lie down, and we three did the same, presenting as small an object as possible for fear of attracting the attention of the warriors toward us. We could see them as they filed out of the pass, just for an instant, before they were lost to view behind a friendly ridge. To us a most providential ridge. Since, had they been in view for any great length of time, they scarcely could have failed to discover us. As what proved to be the last warrior came into view from the pass, we halted, and to our consternation, threw his small but powerful field-glass to his eye and scanned the sea-bottom in all directions. Evidently he was a chieftain, for in certain marching formations among the green men a chieftain brings up the extreme rear of the column. As his glass swung toward us, our hearts stopped in our breasts, and I could feel the cold sweat start from every pore in my body. Presently it swung full upon us, and stopped. The tension on our nerves was near the breaking point, and I doubt if any of us breathed for the few moments he held us covered by his glass. And then he lowered it, and we could see him shout a command to the warriors who had passed from our sight beyond the ridge. He did not wait for them to join him, however, instead he wheeled his throat and came tearing madly in our direction. There was but one slight chance, and that we must take quickly. 
raising my strange Martian rifle to my shoulder, I sighted and touched the button which controlled the trigger. There was a sharp explosion as the missile reached its goal, and the charging chieftain pitched backward from his flying mount. Springing to my feet, I urged the thoat to rise, and directed Sola to take Dejah Thoris with her upon him and make a mighty effort to reach the hills before the green warriors were upon us. I knew that in the ravines and gullies they might find a temporary hiding-place, and even though they died there of hunger and thirst it would be better so than that they fell into the hands of the Tharks. Forcing my two revolvers upon them as a slight means of protection, and, as a last resort, as an escape for themselves from the horrid death which recapture would surely mean, I lifted Dejah Thoris in my arms and placed her upon the thoat behind Sola, who had already mounted at my command. "'Good-bye, my princess,' I whispered. "'We may meet in Helium yet. I have escaped from worse plights than this.' And I tried to smile as I lied. "'What?' she cried. "'Are you not coming with us?' "'How may I, Dejah Thoris? Someone must hold these fellows off for a while.' and I can better escape them alone than could the three of us together." She sprang quickly from the thoat, and throwing her dear arms about my neck, turned to Sola, saying with quiet dignity, "'Fly, Sola! Dejah Thoris remains to die with the man she loves.' Those words are engraved upon my heart. Ah, gladly would I give up my life a thousand times could I only hear them once again but I could not then give even a second to the rapture of her sweet embrace, and pressing my lips to hers for the first time, I picked her up bodily and tossed her to her seat behind Sola again, commanding the latter in peremptory tones to hold her there by force, and then, slapping the thoat upon the flank, I saw them borne away, Dejah Thora struggling to the last to free herself from Sola's grasp. Turning, I beheld the green warriors mounting the ridge and looking for their chieftain. In a moment they saw him, and then me. But scarcely had they discovered me than I commenced firing, lying flat upon my belly in the moss. I had an even hundred rounds in the magazine of my rifle, and another hundred in the belt at my back, and I kept up a continuous stream of fire until I saw all of the warriors who had been first to return from behind the ridge either dead or scurrying to cover. My respite was short-lived, however, for soon the entire party, numbering some thousand men, came charging into view, racing madly toward me. I fired until my rifle was empty and they were almost upon me. And then a glance showing me that Dejah Thoris and Sola had disappeared among the hills, I sprang up, throwing down my useless gun, and started away in the direction opposite to that taken by Sola and her charge. If ever Martians had an exhibition of jumping, it was granted those astonished warriors on that day long years ago, but while it led them away from Dejah Thoris it did not distract their attention from endeavoring to capture me. They raced wildly after me, until, finally, my foot struck a projecting piece of quartz and down I went, sprawling upon the moss. As I looked up they were upon me, and although I drew my long-sword in an attempt to sell my life as dearly as possible, 
It was soon over. I reeled beneath their blows, which fell upon me in perfect torrents. My head swam, all was black, and I went down beneath them to oblivion. Chapter 18 Chained in Warhoon It must have been several hours before I regained consciousness, and I well remember the feeling of surprise which swept over me as I realized that I was not dead. I was lying among a pile of sleeping silks and furs in the corner of a small room in which were several green warriors, and bending over me was an ancient and ugly female. As I opened my eyes she turned to one of the warriors, saying, "'He will live, O Jed.' "'Tis well,' replied the one so addressed, rising and approaching my couch. "'He should render rare sport for the great games.' And now, as my eyes fell upon him, I saw that he was no Thark, for his ornaments and metal were not of that horde. He was a huge fellow, terribly scarred about the face and chest, and with one broken tusk and a missing ear. Strapped on either breast were human skulls, and depending from these a number of dried human hands. His reference to the great games of which I had heard so much while among the Tharks convinced me that I had but jumped from purgatory into Gehenna. After a few more words with the female, during which she assured him that I was now fully fit to travel, the Jed ordered that we mount and ride after the main column. I was strapped securely to as wild and unmanageable a thoat as I had ever seen, and with a mounted warrior on either side to prevent the beast from bolting, we rode forth at a furious pace in pursuit of the column. My wounds gave me but little pain, so wonderfully and rapidly had the applications and injections of the female exercised their therapeutic powers, and so deftly had she bound and plastered the injuries. Just before dark we reached the main body of troops shortly after they had made camp for the night. I was immediately taken before the leader, who proved to be the Jeddak of the hordes of Warhoon. Like the Jed, who had brought me, he was frightfully scarred, and also decorated with the breastplate of human skulls and dried dead hands, which seemed to mark all the greater warriors among the Warhoons, as well as to indicate their awful ferocity, which greatly transcends even that of the Tharks. The Jeddak, Bar Comus, who was comparatively young, was the object of the fierce and jealous hatred of his old lieutenant, Dak Kova, the Jed who had captured me, and I could not but note the almost studied efforts which the latter made to affront his superior. He entirely omitted the usual formal salutation as we entered the presence of the Jeddak, and as he pushed me roughly before the ruler he exclaimed in a loud and menacing voice, I have brought a strange creature wearing the metal of a Thark, whom it is my pleasure to have battle with a wild thoat at the great games. He will die as Barcomas, your Jeddak, sees fit, if at all," replied the young ruler, with emphasis and dignity. If at all, roared Dak Kova, by the dead hands at my throat, but he shall die, Barcomas. No maudlin weakness on your part shall save him. 
Oh, would that Warhoon were ruled by a real Jeddak, rather than a water-hearted weakling from whom even old Dak Kova could tear the metal with his bare hands! Barkomas eyed the defiant and insubordinate chieftain for an instant, his expression one of haughty, fearless contempt and hate. And then, without drawing a weapon, and without uttering a word, he hurled himself at the throat of his defamer. I never before had seen two green Martian warriors battle with nature's weapons, and the exhibition of animal ferocity which ensued was as fearful a thing as the most disordered imagination could picture. They tore at each other's eyes and ears with their hands, and with their gleaming tusks repeatedly slashed and gored until both were cut fairly to ribbons from head to foot. Bar Comus had much the better of the battle, as he was stronger, quicker, and more intelligent. It soon seemed that the encounter was done, saving only the final thrust which Bear Comus slipped in, breaking away from a clinch. It was the one little opening that Dakova needed, and hurling himself at the body of his adversary, he buried his single mighty tusk in Bar Comus' groin, and with a last powerful effort, ripped the young Jeddak wide open the full length of his body, the great tusk finally wedging in the bones of Barcoma's jaw. Victor and vanquished rolled limp and lifeless upon the moss, a huge mass of torn and bloody flesh. Barcomas was stone dead, and only the most Herculean efforts on the part of Dakova's females saved him from the fate he deserved. Three days later he walked without assistance to the body of Bar Comus, which by custom had not been moved from where it fell, and placing his foot upon the neck of his erstwhile ruler he assumed the title of Jeddak of Warhoon. The dead Jeddak's hands and head were removed to be added to the ornaments of his conqueror, and then his women cremated what remained, amid wild and terrible laughter. The injuries to Dakova had delayed the march so greatly that it was decided to give up the expedition, which was a raid upon a small Thark community in retaliation for the destruction of the incubator, until after the great games, and the entire body of warriors, ten thousand in number, turned back toward Warhoon. My introduction to these cruel and bloodthirsty people was but an index to the scenes I witnessed almost daily while with them. They were a smaller horde than the Tharks, but much more ferocious. Not a day passed but that some members of the various Warhoon communities met in deadly combat. I have seen as high as eight mortal duels within a single day. We reached the city of Warhoon after some three days' march and I was immediately cast into a dungeon and heavily chained to the floor and walls. Food was brought me at intervals, but owing to the utter darkness of the place I do not know whether I lay there days or weeks or months. It was the most horrible experience of all my life, and that my mind did not give way to the terrors of that inky blackness has been a wonder to me ever since. The place was filled with creeping, crawling things cold, sinuous bodies passed over me when I lay down, and in the darkness I occasionally caught glimpses of gleaming, fiery eyes, fixed in horrible intentness upon me. 
No sound reached me from the world above, and no word would my jailer vouchsafe when my food was brought to me, although I at first bombarded him with questions. Finally, all the hatred and maniacal loathing for these awful creatures who had placed me in this horrible place was centered by my tottering reason upon this single emissary who represented to me the entire horde of Warhoons. I had noticed that he always advanced with his dim torch to where he could place the food within my reach, and as he stooped to place it upon the floor his head was about on a level with my breast. So, with the cunning of a madman, I backed into the far corner of my cell when next I heard him approaching, and gathering a little slack of the great chain which held me in my hand, I waited his coming, crouching like some beast of prey. As he stooped to place my food upon the ground, I swung the chain above my head and crashed the links with all my strength upon his skull. Without a sound he slipped to the floor, stone dead. Laughing and chattering like the idiot I was fast becoming, I fell upon his prostrate form, my fingers feeling for his dead throat. Presently they came in contact with a small chain at the end of which dangled a number of keys. The touch of my fingers on these keys brought back my reason with the suddenness of thought. No longer was I a gibbering idiot, but a sane, reasoning man with the means of escape within my very hands. As I was groping to remove the chain from about my victim's neck, I glanced up into the darkness to see six pairs of gleaming eyes fixed, unwinking upon me. Slowly they approached, and slowly I shrank back from the awful horror of them. Back into my corner I crouched, holding my hands palms out before me, and stealthily on came the awful eyes until they reached the dead body at my feet. Then slowly they retreated, but this time with a strange grating sound, and finally they disappeared in some black and distant recess of my dungeon. End of chapter 18Chapters 19 and 20 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs, read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 19 Battling in the Arena Slowly I regained my composure and finally essayed again an attempt to remove the keys from the dead body of my former jailer. But as I reached out into the darkness to locate it, I found to my horror that it was gone. Then the truth flashed on me. The owners of those gleaming eyes had dragged my prize away from me to be devoured in their neighboring lair, as they had been waiting for days, for weeks, for months through all this awful eternity of my imprisonment to drag my dead carcass to their feast. For two days no food was brought me, but then a new messenger appeared and my incarceration went on as before, but not again did I allow my reason to be submerged by the horror of my position. Shortly after this episode another prisoner was brought in and chained near me. By the dim torchlight 
I saw that he was a red Martian, and I could scarcely await the departure of his guards to address him. As their retreating footsteps died away in the distance, I called out softly the Martian word of greeting, Kaor. "'Who are you who speaks out of the darkness?' he answered. "'John Carter, a friend of the Red Men of Helium.' "'I am of Helium,' he said, "'but I do not recall your name.' And then I told him my story as I have written it here, omitting only any reference to my love for Dejah Thoris. He was much excited by the news of Helium's princess, and seemed quite positive that she and Sola could easily have reached a point of safety from where they left me. He said that he knew the place well, because the defile through which the Warhoon warriors had passed when they discovered us was the only one ever used by them when marching to the south. Dejah Thoris and Sola enter the hills not five miles from a great waterway, and are now probably quite safe he assured me. My fellow prisoner was Kantos Khan, a Padwar, lieutenant, in the navy of Helium. He had been a member of the ill-fated expedition which had fallen into the hands of the Tharks at the time of Dejah Thoris' capture, and he briefly related the events which followed the defeat of the battleships. Badly injured, and only partially manned, they had limped slowly toward Helium, but while passing near the city of Zodanga, the capital of Helium's hereditary enemies among the Red Men of Barsoom, they had been attacked by a great body of war-vessels, and all but the craft to which Kantos Khan belonged were either destroyed or captured. His vessel was chased for days by three of the Zodangan warships, but finally escaped during the darkness of a moonless night. Thirty days after the capture of Dejah Thoris, or about the time of our coming to Thark, his vessel had reached Helium, with about ten survivors of the original crew of seven hundred officers and men. Immediately seven great fleets, each of one hundred mighty warships, had been dispatched to search for Dejah Thoris, and from these vessels two thousand smaller craft had been kept out continuously in futile search for the missing princess. Two green Martian communities had been wiped off the face of Barsoom by the avenging fleets, but no trace of Dejah Thoris had been found. They had been searching among the northern hordes, and only within the past few days had they extended their quest to the south. Kantos Khan had been detailed to one of the small one-man flyers, and had had the misfortune to be discovered by the Warhoons while exploring their city. The bravery and daring of the man won my greatest respect and admiration. Alone he had landed at the city's boundary, and on foot had penetrated to the buildings surrounding the plaza. For two days and nights he had explored their quarters and their dungeons, in search of his beloved princess, only to fall into the hands of a party of Warhoons as he was about to leave after assuring himself that Dejah Thoris was not a captive there. During the period of our incarceration Kantos Khan and I became well acquainted, and formed a warm personal friendship. A few days only elapsed, however, before we were dragged forth from our dungeon for the great games. We were conducted early one morning to an enormous amphitheatre, which, instead of having been built upon the surface of the ground, was excavated below the surface. It had partially filled with debris, 
so that how large it had originally been was difficult to say. In its present condition it held the entire twenty thousand warhoons of the assembled hordes. The arena was immense but extremely uneven and unkempt. Around it the warhoons had piled building stone from some of the ruined edifices of the ancient city to prevent the animals and the captives from escaping into the audience, and at each end had been constructed cages to hold them until their turns came to meet some horrible death upon the arena. Cantos Can and I were confined together in one of the cages. In the others were wild calots, thoats, mad zitadars, green warriors, and women of other hordes, and many strange and ferocious wild beasts of Barsoom which I had never before seen. The din of their roaring, growling, and squealing was deafening, and the formidable appearance of any one of them was enough to make the stoutest heart feel grave forebodings. Cantos Can explained to me that at the end of the day one of these prisoners would gain freedom and the others would lie dead about the arena. The winners in the various contests of the day would be pitted against each other until only two remained alive, the victor in the last encounter being set free, whether animal or man. The following morning the cages would be filled with a new consignment of victims, and so on throughout the ten days of the games. Shortly after we had been caged, the amphitheatre began to fill, and within an hour every available part of the seating space was occupied. Dakova, with his jeds and chieftains, sat at the centre of one side of the arena upon a large raised platform. At a signal from Dakova, the doors of two cages were thrown open, and a dozen green Martian females were driven to the center of the arena. Each was given a dagger, and then, at the far end, a pack of twelve calots, or wild dogs, were loosed upon them. As the brutes, growling and foaming, rushed upon the almost defenseless women, I turned my head that I might not see the horrid sight. The yells and laughter of the green horde bore witness to the excellent quality of the sport, and when I turned back to the arena, as Cantos Can told me it was over, I saw three victorious calots snarling and growling over the bodies of their prey. The women had given a good account of themselves. Next a mad zitadar was loosed among the remaining dogs, and so it went throughout the long, hot, horrible day. During the day I was pitted against first men and then beasts, but as I was armed with a long-sword, and always outclassed my adversary in agility and generally in strength as well, it proved but child's play to me. Time and time again I won the applause of the bloodthirsty multitude, and toward the end there were cries that I be taken from the arena and be made a member of the hordes of Warhoon. Finally there were but three of us left, a great green warrior of some far northern horde, Kantos Khan, and myself. The other two were to battle, and then I to fight the conqueror for the liberty which was accorded the final winner. Kantos Khan had fought several times during the day, and like myself had always proven victorious, but occasionally by the smallest of margins especially when pitted against the green warriors. I had little hope that he could best his giant adversary, 
who had mowed down all before him during the day. The fellow towered nearly sixteen feet in height, while Kantos Khan was some inches under six feet. As they advanced to meet one another I saw for the first time a trick of Martian swordsmanship which centered Kantos Khan's every hope of victory and life on one cast of the dice. For as he came to within about twenty feet of the huge fellow he threw his sword-arm far behind him over his shoulder, and with a mighty sweep hurled his weapon point-foremost at the green warrior. It flew true as an arrow, and piercing the poor devil's heart laid him dead upon the arena. Kantos Khan and I were now pitted against each other. But as we approached to the encounter I whispered to him to prolong the battle until nearly dark, in the hope that we might find some means of escape. The horde evidently guessed that we had no hearts to fight each other, and so they howled in rage as neither of us placed a fatal thrust. Just as I saw the sudden coming of dark, I whispered to Kantos Khan to thrust his sword between my left arm and my body. As he did so, I staggered back, clasping the sword tightly with my arm, and thus fell to the ground with his weapon apparently protruding from my chest. Kantos Khan perceived my coup, and stepping quickly to my side he placed his foot upon my neck, and withdrawing his sword from my body, gave me the final death-blow through the neck which is supposed to sever the jugular vein, but in this instance the cold blade slipped harmlessly into the sand of the arena. In the darkness which had now fallen none could tell but that he had really finished me. I whispered to him to go and claim his freedom, and then look for me in the hills east of the city, and so he left me. When the amphitheatre had cleared, I crept stealthily to the top, and as the great excavation lay far from the plaza, and in an untenanted portion of the great dead city, I had little trouble in reaching the hills beyond. CHAPTER Twenty, IN THE ATMOSPHERE FACTORY For two days I waited there for Kantos Khan, but as he did not come I started off on foot in a northwesterly direction toward a point where he had told me lay the nearest waterway. My only food consisted of vegetable milk from the plants which gave so bounteously of this priceless fluid. Through two long weeks I wandered, stumbling through the nights guided only by the stars and hiding during the days, behind some protruding rock or among the occasional hills I traversed. Several times I was attacked by wild beasts strange, uncouth monstrosities that leaped upon me in the dark, so that I had ever to grasp my long-sword in my hand that I might be ready for them. Usually my strange, newly acquired telepathic power warned me in ample time, but once I was down with vicious fangs at my jugular and a hairy face pressed close to mine before I knew that I was even threatened. What manner of thing was upon me I did not know, but that it was large and heavy and many-legged I could feel. My hands were at its throat before the fangs had a chance to bury themselves in my neck, and slowly I forced the hairy face from me and closed my fingers, vice-like, upon its windpipe. Without a sound we lay there, 
the beast exerting every effort to reach me with those awful fangs, and I straining to maintain my grip and choke the life from it as I kept it from my throat. Slowly my arms gave to the unequal struggle, and inch by inch the burning eyes and gleaming tusks of my antagonist crept toward me, until, as the hairy face touched mine again, I realized that all was over. And then a living mass of destruction sprang from the surrounding darkness full upon the creature that held me pinioned to the ground. The two rolled growling upon the moss, tearing and rending one another in a frightful manner. But it was soon over, and my preserver stood with lowered head above the throat of the dead thing which would have killed me. The nearer moon, hurtling suddenly above the horizon and lighting up the Barsoomian scene, showed me that my preserver was Woola, but from whence he had come or how found me I was at a loss to know. That I was glad of his companionship it is needless to say, but my pleasure at seeing him was tempered by anxiety as to the reason of his leaving Dejah Thoris. Only her death, I felt sure, could account for his absence from her, so faithful I knew him to be to my commands. By the light of the now brilliant moons I saw that he was but a shadow of his former self, and as he turned from my caress and commenced greedily to devour the dead carcass at my feet, I realized that the poor fellow was more than half starved. I myself was in but little better plight, but I could not bring myself to eat the uncooked flesh, and I had no means of making a fire. When Woola had finished his meal, I again took up my weary and seemingly endless wandering in quest of the elusive waterway. At daybreak of the fifteenth day of my search I was overjoyed to see the high trees that denoted the object of my search. At about noon I dragged myself wearily to the portals of a huge building, which covered perhaps four square miles and towered two hundred feet in the air. It showed no aperture in the mighty walls other than the tiny door at which I sank exhausted, nor was there any sign of life about it. I could find no bell or other method of making my presence known to the inmates of the place, unless a small round hole in the wall near the door was for that purpose. It was of about the bigness of a lead pencil, and thinking that it might be in the nature of a speaking-tube, I put my mouth to it and was about to call into it when a voice issued from it, asking me whom I might be, where from, and the nature of my errand. I explained that I had escaped from the Warhoons and was dying of starvation and exhaustion. "'You wear the medal of a green warrior, and are followed by a Kalot, yet you are of the figure of a red man. In color you are neither green nor red. In the name of the ninth day, what manner of creature are you?" I am a friend of the red men of Barsoom, and I am starving. In the name of humanity, open to us," I replied. Presently the door commenced to recede before me until it had sunk into the wall fifty feet, then it stopped and slid easily to the left, exposing a short, narrow corridor of concrete at the further end of which was another door, similar in every respect to the one I had just passed. No one was in sight, 
Yet immediately we passed the first door it slid gently into place behind us, and receded rapidly to its original position in the front wall of the building. As the door had slipped aside I had noticed its great thickness, fully twenty feet, and as it reached its place once more after closing behind us, great cylinders of steel had dropped from the ceiling behind it and fitted their lower ends into apertures countersunk in the floor. A second and third door receded before me and slipped to one side as the first, before I reached a large inner chamber where I found food and drink set out upon a great stone table. A voice directed me to satisfy my hunger and to feed my calot, and while I was thus engaged my invisible host put me through a severe and searching cross-examination. "'Your statements are most remarkable,' said the voice, on concluding its questioning. "'But you are evidently speaking the truth, and it is equally evident that you are not of Barsoom. I can tell that by the conformation of your brain, and the strange location of your internal organs, and the shape and size of your heart.' "'Can you see through me?' I exclaimed. "'Yes, I can see all but your thoughts, and were you a Barsoomian I could read those.' Then a door opened at the far side of the chamber, and a strange, dried-up little mummy of a man came toward me. He wore but a single article of clothing or adornment, a small collar of gold from which depended upon his chest a great ornament as large as a dinner-plate set solid with huge diamonds, except for the exact center which was occupied by a strange stone, an inch in diameter, that scintillated nine different and distinct rays. The seven colors of our earthly prism and two beautiful rays which to me were new and nameless. I cannot describe them any more than you could describe red to a blind man. I only know that they were beautiful in the extreme. The old man sat and talked with me for hours, and the strangest part of our intercourse was that I could read his every thought while he could not fathom an iota from my mind unless I spoke. I did not apprise him of my ability to sense his mental operations, and thus I learned a great deal which proved of immense value to me later, and which I would never have known had he suspected my strange power. For the Martians have such perfect control of their mental machinery that they are able to direct their thoughts with absolute precision. The building in which I found myself contained the machinery which produces that artificial atmosphere which sustains life on Mars. The secret of the entire process hinges on the use of the ninth ray, one of the beautiful scintillations which I had noted emanating from the great stone on my host's diadem. This ray is separated from the other rays of the sun by means of finely adjusted instruments placed upon the roof of the huge building, three-quarters of which is used for reservoirs in which the ninth ray is stored. This product is then treated electrically or rather certain proportions of refined electric vibrations are incorporated with it, and the result is then pumped to the five principal air centers of the planet, where, as it is released, contact with the ether of space transforms it into atmosphere. 
there is always sufficient reserve of the ninth ray stored in the great building to maintain the present Martian atmosphere for a thousand years, and the only fear, as my new friend told me, was that some accident might befall the pumping apparatus. He led me to an inner chamber where I beheld a battery of twenty radium pumps, any one of which was equal to the task of furnishing all Mars with the atmosphere compound. For eight hundred years, he told me, he had watched these pumps which are used alternately a day each at a stretch, or a little over twenty-four and one-half earth hours. He has one assistant who divides the watch with him. Half a Martian year, about three hundred and forty-four of our days, each of these men spend alone in this huge, isolated plant. Every red Martian is taught during the earliest childhood the principles of the manufacture of atmosphere, but only two at one time ever hold the secret of ingress to the great building, which, built as it was with walls a hundred and fifty feet thick, is absolutely unassailable, even the roof being guarded from assault by aircraft by a glass covering five feet thick. The only fear they entertain of attack is from the green Martians or some demented red man, as all Barsoomians realize that the very existence of every form of life on Mars is dependent upon the uninterrupted working of this plant. One curious fact I discovered as I watched his thoughts was that the outer doors are manipulated by telepathic means. The locks are so finely adjusted that the doors are released by the action of a certain combination of thought-waves. To experiment with my new-found toy, I thought to surprise him into revealing this combination, and so I asked him in a casual manner how he had managed to unlock the massive doors for me from the inner chambers of the building. As quick as a flash there leaped to his mind nine Martian sounds, but as quickly faded as he answered that this was a secret he must not divulge. From then on his manner toward me changed as though he feared that he had been surprised into divulging his great secret, and I read suspicion and fear in his looks and thoughts, though his words were still fair. Before I retired for the night he promised to give me a letter to a nearby agricultural officer who would help me on my way to Zodanga, which he said was the nearest Martian city. But be sure that you do not let them know you are bound for helium, as they are at war with that country. My assistant and I are of no country, we belong to all Barsoom, and this talisman which we wear protects us in all lands, even among the green men, though we do not trust ourselves to their lands if we can avoid it," he added. "'And so, good-night, my friend,' he continued. "'May you have a long and restful sleep. Yes a long sleep." And though he smiled pleasantly, I saw in his thoughts the wish that he had never admitted me, and then a picture of him standing over me in the night, and the swift thrust of a long dagger, and the half-formed words, I am sorry, but it is for the best good of Barsoom. As he closed the door of my chamber behind him, his thoughts were cut off from me, as was the sight of him which seemed strange to me in my little knowledge of thought-transference. What was I to do? 
how could I escape through these mighty walls? Easily could I kill him now that I was warned, but once he was dead I could no more escape, and with the stopping of the machinery of the great plant I should die with all the other inhabitants of the planet, all, even Dejah Thoris, were she not already dead. For the others I did not give the snap of my finger, but the thought of Dejah Thoris drove from my mind all desire to kill my mistaken host. Cautiously I opened the door of my apartment, and, followed by Wula, sought the inner of the great doors. A wild scheme had come to me. I would attempt to force the great locks by the nine thought-waves I had read in my host's mind. Creeping stealthily through corridor after corridor and down winding runways which turned hither and thither, I finally reached the great hall in which I had broken my long fast that morning. Nowhere had I seen my host, nor did I know where he kept himself by night. I was on the point of stepping boldly out into the room, when a slight noise behind me warned me back into the shadows of a recess in the corridor. Dragging Woola after me, I crouched low in the darkness. Presently the old man passed close by me, and as he entered the dimly lighted chamber which I had been about to pass through, I saw that he held a long thin dagger in his hand and that he was sharpening it upon a stone. In his mind was the decision to inspect the radium pumps, which would take about thirty minutes, and then return to my bedchamber and finish me. As he passed through the great hall and disappeared down the runway which led to the pump-room, I stole stealthily from my hiding-place and crossed to the great door, the inner of the three which stood between me and liberty. Concentrating my mind upon the massive lock, I hurled the nine thought-waves against it. In breathless expectancy I waited, when finally the great door moved softly toward me and slid quietly to one side. One after the other the remaining mighty portals opened at my command, and Woola and I stepped forth into the darkness, free but little better off than we had been before, other than that we had full stomachs. Hastening away from the shadows of the formidable pile, I made for the first crossroad, intending to strike the central turnpike as quickly as possible. This I reached about morning, and, entering the first enclosure I came to, I searched for some evidences of a habitation. There were low rambling buildings of concrete, barred with heavy, impassable doors, and no amount of hammering and hallowing brought any response. Weary and exhausted from sleeplessness, I threw myself upon the ground, commanding Woola to stand guard. Some time later I was awakened by his frightful growlings, and opened my eyes to see three red Martians standing a short distance from us and covering me with their rifles. "'I am unarmed and no enemy,' I hastened to explain. "'I have been a prisoner among the green men, and am on my way to Zodanga.' All I ask is food and rest for myself and my calot, and the proper directions for reaching my destination." They lowered their rifles and advanced pleasantly toward me, placing their right hands upon my left shoulder, after the manner of their custom of salute, and asking me many questions about myself and my wanderings. 
They then took me to the house of one of them, which was only a short distance away. The buildings I had been hammering at in the early morning were occupied only by stock and farm produce. The house proper, standing among a grove of enormous trees, and, like all red Martian homes, had been raised at night some forty or fifty feet from the ground on a large round metal shaft, which slid up or down within a sleeve sunk in the ground, and was operated by a tiny radium engine in the entrance hall of the building. Instead of bothering with bolts and bars for their dwellings, the Red Martians simply run them up out of harm's way during the night. They also have private means for lowering or raising them from the ground without, if they wish to go away and leave them. These brothers, with their wives and children, occupied three similar houses on this farm. They did no work themselves, being government officers in charge. The labor was performed by convicts, prisoners of war, delinquent debtors, and confirmed bachelors, who were too poor to pay the high celibate tax which all red Martian governments impose. They were the personification of cordiality and hospitality, and I spent several days with them, resting and recuperating from my long and arduous experiences. When they had heard my story, I omitted all reference to Dejah Thoris and the old man of the atmosphere plant, they advised me to color my body to more resemble their own race, and then attempt to find employment in Zodanga, either in the army or the navy. The chances are small that your tale will be believed until after you have proven your trustworthiness and have won friends among the higher nobles of the court. This you can most easily do through military service, as we are a warlike people on Barsoom, explained one of them, and save our richest favors for the fighting man. When I was ready to depart, they furnished me with a small domestic bull thoat such as is used for saddle purposes by all red Martians. The animal is about the size of a horse and quite gentle, but in color and shape an exact replica of his huge and fierce cousin of the wilds. The brothers had supplied me with a reddish oil with which I anointed my entire body, and one of them cut my hair, which had grown quite long, in the prevailing fashion of the time, square at the back and banged in the front so that I could have passed anywhere upon Barsoom as a full-fledged red Martian. My metal and ornaments were also renewed in the style of a Zodangan gentleman, attached to the house of Pator, which was the family name of my benefactors. They filled a little sack at my side with Zodangan money. The medium of exchange upon Mars is not dissimilar from our own, except that the coins are oval. Paper money is issued by individuals as they require it, and redeemed twice yearly. If a man issues more than he can redeem, the government pays his creditors in full, and the debtor works out the amount upon the farms or in mines, which are all owned by the government. This suits everybody except the debtor, as it has been a difficult thing to obtain sufficient voluntary labor to work the great isolated farmlands of Mars stretching as they do like narrow ribbons from pole to pole, through wild stretches peopled by wild animals and wilder men. When I mentioned my inability to repay them for their kindness to me, they assured me that I would have ample opportunity if I lived long upon Barsoom, 
and bidding me farewell, they watched me until I was out of sight upon the broad white turnpike. End of chapter 20《Chapters 21 and 22 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs, read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Princess of Mars, Chapter 21 An Air Scout for Zodanga. As I proceeded on my journey toward Zodanga, many strange and interesting sights arrested my attention, and at the several farmhouses where I stopped I learned a number of new and instructive things concerning the methods and manners of Barsoom. The water which supplies the farms of Mars is collected in immense underground reservoirs at either pole from the melting ice-caps, and pumped through long conduits to the various populated centers. Along either side of these conduits, and extending their entire length, lie the cultivated districts. These are divided into tracts of about the same size, each tract being under the supervision of one or more government officers. Instead of flooding the surface of the fields, and thus wasting immense quantities of water by evaporation, the precious liquid is carried underground through a vast network of small pipes directly to the roots of the vegetation. The crops upon Mars are always uniform, for there are no droughts, no rains, no high winds, and no insects or destroying birds. On this trip I tasted the first meat I had eaten since leaving Earth, large juicy steaks and chops from the well-fed domestic animals of the farms. I also enjoyed luscious fruits and vegetables, but not a single article of food which was exactly similar to anything on earth. Every plant and flower and vegetable and animal has been so refined by ages of careful, scientific cultivation and breeding, that the like of them on earth dwindled into pale, gray, characterless nothingness by comparison. At a second stop I met some highly cultivated people of the noble class, and while in conversation we chanced to speak of helium. One of the older men had been there on a diplomatic mission several years before, and spoke with regret of the conditions which seemed destined ever to keep those two countries at war. Helium, he said, rightly boasts the most beautiful women of Barsoom, and of all her treasures the wondrous daughter of Mors Kajak, Deja Thoris, is the most exquisite flower. Why, he added, the people really worship the ground she walks upon, and since her loss on that ill-starred expedition all helium has been draped in mourning. That our ruler should have attacked the disabled fleet as it was returning to helium was but another of his awful blunders, which I fear will sooner or later compel Zodanga to elevate a wiser man to his place. Even now, though our victorious armies are surrounding Helium, the people of Zodanga are voicing their displeasure, for the war is not a popular one, since it is not based on right or justice. Our forces took advantage of the absence of the principal fleet of Helium on their search for the Princess, 
and so we have been able easily to reduce the city to a sorry plight. It is said she will fall within the next few passages of the further moon. And what, think you, may have been the fate of the Princess Deja Thoris? I asked as casually as possible. She is dead, he answered. This much was learned from a green warrior recently captured by our forces in the south. She escaped from the hordes of Thark with a strange creature of another world, only to fall into the hands of the Warhoons. Their thoats were found wandering upon the sea-bottom, and evidences of a bloody conflict were discovered nearby. While this information was in no way reassuring, neither was it at all conclusive proof of the death of Dejah Thoris, and so I determined to make every effort possible to reach Helium as quickly as I could, and carry to Tardos Mors such news of his granddaughter's possible whereabouts as lay in my power. Ten days after leaving the three Ptor brothers I arrived at Zodanga. From the moment that I had come in contact with the red inhabitants of Mars, I had noticed that Woola drew a great amount of unwelcome attention to me, since the huge brute belonged to a species which is never domesticated by the red men. Were one to stroll down Broadway with a Numidian lion at his heels, the effect would be somewhat similar to that which I should have produced had I entered Zodanga with Woola. The very thought of parting with the faithful fellow caused me so great regret and genuine sorrow that I put it off until just before we arrived at the city's gates. But then, finally, it became imperative that we separate. Had nothing further than my own safety or pleasure been at stake, no argument could have prevailed upon me to turn away the one creature upon Barsoom that had never failed in a demonstration of affection and loyalty. But as I would willingly have offered my life in the service of her, in search of whom I was about to challenge the unknown dangers of this, to me, mysterious city, I could not permit even Woola's life to threaten the success of my venture, much less his momentary happiness, for I doubted not he soon would forget me. And so I bade the poor beast an affectionate farewell promising him, however, that if I came through my adventure in safety, that in some way I should find the means to search him out. He seemed to understand me fully, and when I pointed back in the direction of Thark he turned sorrowfully away, nor could I bear to watch him go, but resolutely set my face toward Zodanga and with a touch of heartsickness approached her frowning walls. The letter I bore from them gained me immediate entrance to the vast walled city. It was still very early in the morning, and the streets were practically deserted. The residences, raised high upon their metal columns, resembled huge rookeries, while the uprights themselves presented the appearance of steel tree-trunks. The shops, as a rule, were not raised from the ground, nor were the doors bolted or barred since thievery is practically unknown upon Barsoom. Assassination is the ever-present fear of all Barsoomians, and for this reason alone their homes are raised high above the ground at night, or in times of danger. The Pator brothers had given me explicit directions for reaching the point of the city, where I could find living accommodations and be near the offices of the government agents to whom they had given me letters. 
my way led to the central square or plaza, which is a characteristic of all Martian cities. The plaza of Zodanga covers a square mile, and is bounded by the palaces of the Jeddak, the Jeds, and other members of the royalty and nobility of Zodanga, as well as by the principal public buildings, cafés, and shops. As I was crossing the great square, lost in wonder and admiration of the magnificent architecture and the gorgeous scarlet vegetation which carpeted the broad lawns, I discovered a red Martian walking briskly toward me from one of the avenues. He paid not the slightest attention to me, but as he came abreast I recognized him, and, turning, I placed my hand upon his shoulder, calling out, Kaor, Cantos Can! Like lightning he wheeled, and before I could so much as lower my hand, the point of his longsword was at my breast. "'Who are you?' he growled, and then, as a backward leap carried me fifty feet from the sword, he dropped the point to the ground and exclaimed, laughing, "'I do not need a better reply. There is but one man upon all Barsoom who can bounce about like a rubber ball. By the mother of the further moon, John Carter, how came you here, and have you become a Darcine that you can change your color at will? You gave me a bad half-minute, my friend," he continued, after I had briefly outlined my adventures since parting with him in the arena at Warhoon. Were my name and city known to the Zodangans, I would shortly be sitting on the banks of the lost Sea of Chorus with my revered and departed ancestors. I am here in the interest of Tardos Mors, Jeddak of Helium, to discover the whereabouts of Deja Thoris, our princess. Zab Than, prince of Zodanga, has her hidden in the city and has fallen madly in love with her. His father, Than Kosis, Jeddak of Zodanga, has made her voluntary marriage to his son the price of peace between our countries. But Tardos Mors will not accede to the demands and has sent word that he and his people would rather look upon the dead face of their princess than see her wed to any than her own choice, and that personally he would prefer being engulfed in the ashes of a lost and burning helium to joining the metal of his house with that of Thancosis. His reply was the deadliest affront he could have put upon Thancosis and the Zodangans, but his people love him the more for it and his strength in helium is greater today than ever. I have been here three days, continued Kantos Khan, but I have not yet found where Deja Thoris is imprisoned. Today I joined the Zodangan navy as an air scout, and I hope in this way to win the confidence of Sab Than, the prince, who is commander of this division of the navy, and thus learn the whereabouts of Deja Thoris. I am glad that you are here, John Carter for I know your loyalty to my princess and the two of us working together should be able to accomplish much." The plaza was now commencing to fill with people going and coming upon the daily activities of their duties. The shops were opening and the cafés filling with early morning patrons. Cantos Can led me to one of these gorgeous eating-places, where we were served entirely by mechanical apparatus. No hand touched the food from the time it entered the building in its raw state until it emerged hot and delicious upon the tables before the guests, in response to the touching of tiny buttons to indicate their desires. After our meal, 
Kantos Khan took me with him to the headquarters of the Air Scout Squadron, and introducing me to his superior, asked that I be enrolled as a member of the Corps. In accordance with custom, an examination was necessary, but Kantos Khan had told me to have no fear on this score, as he would attend to that part of the matter. He accomplished this by taking my order for examination to the examining officer and representing himself as John Carter. This ruse will be discovered later, he cheerfully explained, when they check up my weights, measurements, and other personal identification data. But it will be several months before this is done, and our mission should be accomplished or have failed long before that time. The next few days were spent by Kantos Khan in teaching me the intricacies of flying and of repairing the dainty little contrivances which the Martians use for this purpose. The body of the one-man aircraft is about sixteen feet long, two feet wide, and three inches thick, tapering to a point at each end. The driver sits on top of this plane, upon a seat constructed over the small, noiseless radium engine which propels it. The medium of buoyancy is contained within the thin metal walls of the body, and consists of the eighth Barsoomian ray, or ray of propulsion, as it may be termed in view of its properties. This ray, like the ninth ray, is unknown on earth, but the Martians have discovered that it is an inherent property of all light no matter from what source it emanates. They have learned that it is the solar eighth ray which propels the light of the sun to the various planets, and that is the individual eighth ray of each planet which reflects or propels the light thus obtained out into space once more. The solar eighth ray would be absorbed by the surface of Barsoom, but the Barsoomian eighth ray, which tends to propel light from Mars into space, is constantly streaming out from the planet, constituting a force of repulsion of gravity, which when confined, is able to lift enormous weights from the surface of the ground. It is this ray which has enabled them to so perfect aviation that battleships, far outweighing anything known upon earth, sail as gracefully and lightly through the thin air of Barsoom as a toy balloon in the heavy atmosphere of earth. During the early years of the discovery of this ray, many strange accidents occurred before the Martians learned to measure and control the wonderful power they had found. In one instance, some nine hundred years before, the first great battleship to be built with eighth-ray reservoirs was stored with too great a quantity of the rays, and she had sailed up from helium with five hundred officers and men never to return. Her power of repulsion for the planet was so great that it had carried her far into space, where she can be seen today by the aid of powerful telescopes hurtling through the heavens ten thousand miles from Mars, a tiny satellite that will thus encircle Barsoom to the end of time. The fourth day after my arrival at Zodanga I made my first flight, and as a result of it I won a promotion which included quarters in the palace of Thancosis. As I rose above the city I circled several times, as I had seen Kantos can do, and then, throwing my engine into top speed, I raced at terrific velocity toward the south, following one of the great waterways which enters Zodanga from that direction. 
I had traversed perhaps two hundred miles in little less than an hour, when I descried far below me a party of three green warriors racing madly toward a small figure on foot, which seemed to be trying to reach the confines of one of the walled fields. Dropping my machine rapidly toward them, and circling to the rear of the warriors, I soon saw that the object of their pursuit was a red Martian, wearing the medal of the scout squadron to which I was attached. A short distance away lay his tiny flyer, surrounded by the tools with which he had evidently been occupied in repairing some damage, when surprised by the green warriors. They were now almost upon him their flying mounts charging down on the relatively puny figure at terrific speed, while the warriors leaned low to the right with their great metal-shod spears. Each seemed striving to be the first to impale the poor Zodangan, and in another moment his fate would have been sealed had it not been for my timely arrival. Driving my fleet aircraft at high speed directly behind the warriors, I soon overtook them, and without diminishing my speed I rammed the prow of my little flyer between the shoulders of the nearest. The impact, sufficient to have torn through inches of solid steel, hurled the fellow's headless body into the air over the head of his thoat, where it fell sprawling upon the moss. The mounts of the other two warriors turned squealing in terror, and bolted in opposite directions. Reducing my speed, I circled and came to the ground at the feet of the astonished Zodangan. He was warm in his thanks for my timely aid, and promised that my day's work would bring the reward it merited, for it was none other than a cousin of the Jeddak of Zodanga whose life I had saved. We wasted no time in talk as we knew that the warriors would surely return as soon as they had gained control of their mounts. Hastening to his damaged machine, we were bending every effort to finish the needed repairs and had almost completed them when we saw the two green monsters returning at top speed from opposite sides of us. When they had approached within a hundred yards their thoats again became unmanageable, and absolutely refused to advance further toward the aircraft which had frightened them. The warriors finally dismounted and hobbling their animals advanced toward us on foot with drawn long-swords. I advanced to meet the larger, telling the Zodangan to do the best he could with the other. Finishing my man with almost no effort, as had now from much practice become habitual with me, I hastened to return to my new acquaintance whom I found indeed in desperate straits. He was wounded and down with the huge foot of his antagonist upon his throat and the great long-sword raised to deal the final thrust. With a bound I cleared the fifty feet intervening between us, and with outstretched point drove my sword completely through the body of the green warrior. His sword fell harmless to the ground, and he sank limply upon the prostrate form of the Zodangan. A cursory examination of the latter revealed no mortal injuries, and after a brief rest he asserted that he felt fit to attempt the return voyage. He would have to pilot his own craft, however, as these frail vessels are not intended to convey but a single person. Quickly completing the repairs, we rose together into the still, cloudless Martian sky, and at great speed and without further mishap returned to Zodanga. As we neared the city, 
we discovered a mighty concourse of civilians and troops assembled upon the plain before the city. The sky was black with naval vessels and private and public pleasure craft, flying long streamers of gay-colored silks, and banners and flags of odd and picturesque design. My companion signaled that I slow down, and running his machine close beside mine suggested that we approach and watch the ceremony, which, he said, was for the purpose of conferring honors on individual officers and men for bravery and for other distinguished service. He then unfurled a little ensign which denoted that his craft bore a member of the royal family of Zodanga, and together we made our way through the maze of low-lying air-vessels until we hung directly over the jeddak of Zodanga and his staff. All were mounted upon the small domestic bull-thoats of the Red Martians, and their trappings and ornamentation bore such a quantity of gorgeously colored feathers that I could not but be struck by the startling resemblance the concourse bore to a band of the Red Indians of my own earth. One of the staff called the attention of Thancosis to the presence of my companion above them, and the ruler motioned for him to descend. As they waited for the troops to move into position facing the jeddak, the two talked earnestly together, the jeddak and his staff occasionally glancing up at me. I could not hear their conversation, and presently it ceased, and all dismounted, as the last body of troops had wheeled into position before their emperor. A member of the staff advanced toward the troops, and calling the name of a soldier commanded him to advance. The officer then recited the nature of the heroic act which had won the approval of the jeddak, and the latter advanced and placed a metal ornament upon the left arm of the lucky man. Ten men had been so decorated when the aide called out, "'John Carter, Air Scout!' Never in my life had I been so surprised but the habit of military discipline is strong within me, and I dropped my little machine lightly to the ground and advanced on foot as I had seen the others do. As I halted before the officer he addressed me in a voice audible to the entire assemblage of troops and spectators. "'In recognition, John Carter,' he said, "'of your remarkable courage and skill in defending the person of the cousin of the Jeddak Thancosis, and, single-handed, vanquishing three green warriors, it is the pleasure of our jeddak to confer on you the mark of his esteem." Thancosis then advanced toward me, and placing an ornament upon me, said, "'My cousin has narrated the details of your wonderful achievement, which seems little short of miraculous, and if you can so well defend a cousin of the jeddak, how much better could you defend the person of the jeddak himself? You are therefore appointed a padwar of the guards, and will be quartered in my palace hereafter." I thanked him, and at his direction joined the members of his staff. After the ceremony I returned my machine to its quarters on the roof of the barracks of the Air Scout Squadron, and with an orderly from the palace to guide me I reported to the officer in charge of the palace. Chapter 22 I Find Deja The major-domo to whom I reported had been given instructions to station me near the person of the jeddak, who, in time of war, is always in great danger of assassination, 
as the rule that all is fair in war seems to constitute the entire ethics of Martian conflict. He therefore escorted me immediately to the apartment in which Than Kosis then was. The ruler was engaged in conversation with his son, Sab Than, and several courtiers of his household, and did not perceive my entrance. The walls of the apartment were completely hung with splendid tapestries which hid any windows or doors which may have pierced them. The room was lighted by imprisoned rays of sunshine held between the ceiling proper and what appeared to be a ground-glass false ceiling a few inches below. My guide drew aside one of the tapestries, disclosing a passage which encircled the room, between the hangings and the walls of the chamber. Within this passage I was to remain, he said, so long as Than Kosis was in the apartment. When he left I was to follow. My only duty was to guard the ruler and keep out of sight as much as possible. I would be relieved after a period of four hours. The major-domo then left me. The tapestries were of a strange weaving which gave the appearance of heavy solidity from one side, but from my hiding-place I could perceive all that took place within the room as readily as though there had been no curtain intervening. Scarcely had I gained my post than the tapestry at the opposite end of the chamber separated, and four soldiers of the guard entered, surrounding a female figure. As they approached Than Kosis, the soldiers fell to either side, and there standing before the jeddak and not ten feet from me, her beautiful face radiant with smiles, was Dejah Thoris. Sab Than, Prince of Zodanga, advanced to meet her and hand in hand they approached close to the jeddak. Than Kosis looked up in surprise, and rising, saluted her. To what strange freak do I owe this visit from the princess of Helium, who, two days ago, with rare consideration for my pride, assured me that she would prefer Talhajus, the green Thark, to my son? Dejah Thoris only smiled the more and with the roguish dimples playing at the corners of her mouth she made answer. From the beginning of time upon Barsoom it has been the prerogative of woman to change her mind as she listed, and to dissemble in matters concerning her heart. That you will forgive, Thancosis, as has your son. Two days ago I was not sure of his love for me, but now I am and I have come to beg of you to forget my rash words, and to accept the assurance of the Princess of Helium that when the time comes she will wed Sab Than, Prince of Zodanga." "'I am glad you have so decided,' replied Thancosis. "'It is far from my desire to push war further against the people of Helium. And your promise shall be recorded, and a proclamation to my people issued forthwith. It were better, Thancosis, interrupted Dejah Thoris, that the proclamation wait the ending of this war. It would look strange indeed to my people and to yours were the Princess of Helium to give herself to her country's enemy in the midst of hostilities. Cannot the war be ended at once? spoke Sab Than. It requires but the word of Thancosis to bring peace. Say it, my father. Say the word that will hasten my happiness and end this unpopular strife. 
"'We shall see,' replied Thancosis, "'how the people of Helium take to peace. I shall at least offer it to them.' Dejah Thoris, after a few words, turned and left the apartment, still followed by her guards. Thus was the edifice of my brief dream of happiness dashed, broken to the ground of reality. The woman for whom I had offered my life, and from whose lips I had so recently heard a declaration of love for me, had lightly forgotten my very existence, and smilingly given herself to the son of her people's most hated enemy. Although I had heard it with my own ears, I could not believe it. I must search out her apartments and force her to repeat the cruel truth to me alone, before I would be convinced, and so I deserted my post and hastened through the passage behind the tapestries toward the door by which she had left the chamber. Slipping quietly through this opening, I discovered a maze of winding corridors, branching and turning in every direction. Running rapidly down first one and then another of them, I soon became hopelessly lost, and was standing, panting, against a side wall, when I heard voices near me. Apparently they were coming from the opposite side of the partition against which I leaned, and presently I made out the tones of Dejah Thoris. I could not hear the words, but I knew that I could not possibly be mistaken in the voice. Moving on a few steps, I discovered another passageway at the end of which lay a door. Walking boldly forward, I pushed into the room only to find myself in a small antechamber in which were the four guards who had accompanied her. One of them instantly arose and accosted me, asking the nature of my business. "'I am from Thancosis,' I replied, and wish to speak privately with Dejah Thoris, Princess of Helium." "'And your order?' asked the fellow. I did not know what he meant, but replied that I was a member of the guard, and without waiting for a reply from him I strode toward the opposite door of the antechamber, behind which I could hear Dejah Thoris conversing. But my entrance was not to be so easily accomplished. The guardsman stepped before me, saying, "'No one comes from Thancosis without carrying an order or the password. You must give me one or the other before you may pass. The only order I require, my friend, to enter where I will, hangs at my side, I answered, tapping my long sword. Will you let me pass in peace or no? For reply, he whipped out his own sword, calling to the others to join him, and thus the four stood with drawn weapons, barring my further progress. "'You are not here by the order of Thancosis,' cried the one who had first addressed me. "'And not only shall you not enter the apartments of the Princess of Helium, but you shall go back to Thancosis under guard to explain this unwarranted temerity. Throw down your sword. You cannot hope to overcome four of us,' he added with a grim smile. My reply was a quick thrust which left me but three antagonists and I can assure you that they were worthy of my medal. They had me backed against the wall in no time, fighting for my life. Slowly I worked my way to a corner of the room where I could force them to come at me only one at a time, and thus we fought upward of twenty minutes, the clanging of steel on steel producing a veritable bedlam in the little room. 
The noise had brought Dejah Thoris to the door of her apartment, and there she stood throughout the conflict with Sola at her back, peering over her shoulder. Her face was set and emotionless, and I knew that she did not recognize me, nor did Sola. Finally a lucky cut brought down a second guardsman, and then, with only two opposing me, I changed my tactics and rushed them down after the fashion of my fighting that had won me many a victory. The third fell within ten seconds after the second, and the last lay dead upon the bloody floor a few moments later. They were brave men and noble fighters, and it grieved me that I had been forced to kill them. But I would have willingly depopulated all Barsoom could I have reached the side of my Dejah Thoris in no other way. Sheathing my bloody blade, I advanced toward my Martian princess, who stood mutely gazing at me with no sign of recognition. "'Who are you, Zodangan?' she whispered. "'Another enemy to harass me in my misery?' "'I am a friend,' I answered, "'a once cherished friend.' No friend of Helium's princess wears that metal, she replied. And yet the voice! I have heard it before. It is not, it cannot be. No, for he is dead. It is, though, my princess, none other than John Carter, I said. Do you not recognize, even through paint and strange metal, the heart of your chieftain? As I came close to her, she swayed toward me with outstretched hands but as I reached to take her in my arms she drew back with a shudder and a little moan of misery. "'Too late! Too late!' she grieved. "'Oh, my chieftain that was, and whom I thought dead, had you but returned one little hour before, but now it is too late, too late!' "'What do you mean, Dejah Thoris?' I cried that you would not have promised yourself to the Zodangan prince had you known that I lived? Think you, John Carter, that I would give my heart to you yesterday and to-day to another? I thought that it lay buried with your ashes in the pits of Warhoon, and so to-day I have promised my body to another to save my people from the curse of a victorious Zodangan army. But I am not dead, my princess. I have come to claim you, and all Zodanga cannot prevent it. It is too late, John Carter. My promise is given, and on Barsoom that is final. The ceremonies which follow later are but meaningless formalities. They make the fact of marriage no more certain than does the funeral cortege of a Jeddak again place the seal of death upon him. I am as good as married, John Carter. No longer may you call me your princess. No longer are you my chieftain. I know but little of your customs here upon Barsoom, Dejah Thoris, but I do know that I love you. And if you meant the last words you spoke to me that day, as the hordes of Warhoon were charging down upon us, no other man shall ever claim you as his bride. You meant them then, my princess, and you mean them still. Say that it is true. I meant them, John Carter," she whispered. I cannot repeat them now, for I have given myself to another. Ah, if you had only known our ways, my friend," she continued, half to herself, the promise would have been yours long months ago, and you could have claimed me before all others. 
It might have meant the fall of Helium, but I would have given my empire for my Tharkian chief." Then aloud she said, "'Do you remember the night when you offended me? You called me your princess, without having asked my hand of me, and then you boasted that you had fought for me. You did not know, and I should not have been offended. I see that now. But there was no one to tell you what I could not, that upon Barsoom there are two kinds of women in the cities of the Red Men. The one they fight for, that they may ask them in marriage. The other kind they fight for also, but never ask their hands. When a man has won a woman he may address her as his princess, or in any of the several terms which signify possession. You had fought for me, but had never asked me in marriage, and so when you called me your princess, you see," she faltered, I was hurt. But even then, John Carter, I did not repulse you, as I should have done, until you made it doubly worse by taunting me with having won me through combat. I do not need to ask your forgiveness now, Dejah Thoris," I cried. You must know that my fault was of ignorance of your Barsoomian customs. What I failed to do, through implicit belief that my petition would be presumptuous and unwelcome, I do now, Dejah Thoris. I ask you to be my wife, and by all the Virginian fighting blood that flows in my veins you shall be." No, John Carter, it is useless she cried, hopelessly, I may never be yours while Sab Than lives." "'You have sealed his death-warrant, my princess. Sab Than dies.' "'Nor that either,' she hastened to explain. I may not wed the man who slays my husband, even in self-defense. It is custom. We are ruled by custom upon Barsoom. It is useless, my friend. You must bear the sorrow with me. That, at least, we may share in common. That, and the memory of the brief days among the Tharks. You must go now, and never see me again. Good-bye, my chieftain that was." Disheartened and dejected, I withdrew from the room. But I was not entirely discouraged nor would I admit that Dejah Thoris was lost to me until the ceremony had actually been performed. As I wandered along the corridors I was as absolutely lost in the mazes of winding passageways as I had been before I discovered Dejah Thoris' apartments. I knew that my only hope lay in escape from the city of Zodanga, for the matter of the four dead guardsmen would have to be explained and as I could never reach my original post without a guide, suspicion would surely rest on me so soon as I was discovered wandering aimlessly through the palace. Presently I came upon a spiral runway leading to a lower floor, and this I followed downward for several stories until I reached the doorway of a large apartment in which were a number of guardsmen. The walls of this room were hung with transparent tapestries behind which I secreted myself without being apprehended. The conversation of the guardsmen was general, and awakened no interest in me until an officer entered the room and ordered four of the men to relieve the detail who were guarding the Princess of Helium. Now I knew my troubles would commence in earnest, and indeed they were upon me all too soon for it seemed that the squad had scarcely left the guardroom before one of their number burst in again breathlessly, 
crying that they had found their four comrades butchered in the antechamber. In a moment the entire palace was alive with people. Guardsmen, officers, courtiers, servants, and slaves ran helter-skelter through the corridors and apartments, carrying messages and orders, and searching for signs of the assassin. This was my opportunity, and, slim as it appeared, I grasped it, for as a number of soldiers came hurrying past my hiding-place, I fell in behind them, and followed through the mazes of the palace, until, in passing through a great hall, I saw the blessed light of day coming in through a series of larger windows. Here I left my guides, and slipping to the nearest window sought for an avenue of escape. The windows opened upon a great balcony which overlooked one of the broad avenues of Zodanga. The ground was about thirty feet below, and at a like distance from the building was a wall full twenty feet high, constructed of polished glass about a foot in thickness. To a red Martian escape by this path would have appeared impossible, but to me, with my earthly strength and agility, it seemed already accomplished. My only fear was in being detected before darkness fell, for I could not make the leap in broad daylight while the court below and the avenue beyond were crowded with Zodangans. Accordingly I searched for a hiding-place and finally found one by accident, inside a huge hanging ornament which swung from the ceiling of the hall, and about ten feet from the floor. Into the capacious bowl-like vase I sprang with ease and scarcely had I settled down within it than I heard a number of people enter the apartment. The group stopped beneath my hiding-place, and I could plainly overhear their every word. "'It is the work of Heliumites,' said one of the men. "'Yes, O Jeddak. But how had they access to the palace? I could believe that even with the diligent care of your guardsmen a single enemy might reach the inner chambers but how a force of six or eight fighting men could have done so unobserved is beyond me. We shall soon know, however, for here comes the royal psychologist." Another man now joined the group, and after making his formal greetings to his ruler, said, "'O oh, mighty Jeddak, it is a strange tale I read in the dead minds of your faithful guardsmen. They were felled not by a number of fighting men, but by a single opponent. He paused to let the full weight of this announcement impress his hearers, and that his statement was scarcely credited was evidenced by the impatient exclamation of incredulity which escaped the lips of Thancosis. "'What manner of weird tale are you bringing me, Notan?' he cried. "'It is the truth, my Jeddak,' replied the psychologist. In fact, the impressions were strongly marked on the brain of each of the four guardsmen. Their antagonist was a very tall man, wearing the medal of one of your own guardsmen, and his fighting ability was little short of marvellous, for he fought fair against the entire four, and vanquished them by his surpassing skill and superhuman strength and endurance. Though he wore the medal of Zodanga, my Jeddak, such a man was never seen before in this or any other country upon Barsoom. The mind of the Princess of Helium, whom I have examined and questioned, was a blank to me. She has perfect control, and I could not read one iota of it. She said 
that she witnessed a portion of the encounter, and that when she looked there was but one man engaged with the guardsman, a man whom she did not recognize as ever having seen. "'Where is my erstwhile savior? spoke another of the party, and I recognized the voice of the cousin of Thancosis, whom I had rescued from the green warriors. "'By the medal of my first ancestor,' he went on, but the description fits him to perfection, especially as to his fighting ability. "'Where is this man?' cried Thancosis. "'Have him brought to me at once. What know you of him, cousin? It seems strange to me now that I think upon it, that there should have been such a fighting man in Zodanga, of whose name even we were ignorant before to-day. And his name, too, John Carter. Who ever heard of such a name upon Barsoom? Word was soon brought that I was nowhere to be found, either in the palace or at my former quarters in the barracks of the Air Scout Squadron. Cantos Khan they had found and questioned, but he knew nothing of my whereabouts, and as to my past, he told them he knew as little, since he had but recently met me during our captivity among the Warhoons. Keep your eyes on this other one, commanded Thancosis. He also is a stranger, and likely as not they both hail from Helium, and where one is we shall sooner or later find the other. Quadruple the air patrol, and let every man who leaves the city by air or ground be subjected to the closest scrutiny. Another messenger now entered with word that I was still within the palace walls. The likeness of every person who has entered or left the palace grounds to-day has been carefully examined," concluded the fellow, and not one approaches the likeness of this new padwar of the guards, other than that which was recorded of him at the time he entered. "'Then we shall have him shortly,' commented Thancosis contentedly, and in the meanwhile we will repair to the apartments of the Princess of Helium and question her in regard to the affair. She may know more than she cared to divulge to you, Notan. Come." They left the hall, and as darkness had fallen without, I slipped lightly from my hiding-place and hastened to the balcony. Few were in sight, and choosing a moment when none seemed near, I sprang quickly to the top of the glass wall, and from there to the avenue beyond the palace grounds. End of chapter 22、Chapters 23 and 24 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs, read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Princess of Mars, Chapter Twenty Three, Lost in the Sky. Without effort at concealment, I hastened to the vicinity of our quarters, where I felt sure I should find Cantos Can. As I neared the building, I became more careful, as I judged and rightly, that the place would be guarded. Several men in civilian metal loitered near the front entrance, and in the rear were others. My only means of reaching, unseen, the upper story where our apartments were situated was through an adjoining building, 
and after considerable maneuvering I managed to attain the roof of a shop several doors away. Leaping from roof to roof, I soon reached an open window in the building where I hoped to find the Heliumite, and in another moment I stood in the room before him. He was alone and showed no surprise at my coming, saying he had expected me much earlier, as my tour of duty must have ended some time since. I saw that he knew nothing of the events of the day at the palace, and when I had enlightened him he was all excitement. The news that Dejah Thoris had promised her hand to Saab Than filled him with dismay. "'It cannot be!' he exclaimed. "'It is impossible! Why, no man in all Helium but would prefer death to the selling of our loved princess to the ruling house of Zodanga. She must have lost her mind to have assented to such an atrocious bargain. You, who do not know how we of Helium love the members of our ruling house, cannot appreciate the horror with which I contemplate such an unholy alliance. What can be done, John Carter? he continued. You are a resourceful man. Can you not think of some way to save Helium from this disgrace? If I can come within sword's reach of Sab Than, I answered, I can solve the difficulty in so far as Helium is concerned, but for personal reasons I would prefer that another struck the blow that frees Dejah Thoris. Kantos Ken eyed me narrowly before he spoke. You love her, he said. Does she know it? She knows it, Kantos Ken, and repulses me only because she has promised to Sab Than. The splendid fellow sprang to his feet, and grasping me by the shoulder raised his sword on high, exclaiming, "'And had the choice been left to me, I could not have chosen a more fitting mate for the first princess of Barsoom. Here is my hand upon your shoulder, John Carter, and my word that Sab Than shall go out at the point of my sword for the sake of my love for Helium, for Dejah Thoris, and for you.' This very night I shall try to reach his quarters in the palace. How? I asked. You are strongly guarded, and a quadruple force patrols the sky. He bent his head in a thought a moment, then raised it with an air of confidence. I only need to pass these guards and can do it, he said at last. I know a secret entrance to the palace through the pinnacle of the highest tower. I fell upon it by chance one day, as I was passing above the palace on patrol duty. In this work it is required that we investigate any unusual occurrence we may witness, and the face peering from the pinnacle of the high tower of the palace was to me most unusual. I therefore drew near and discovered that the possessor of the peering face was none other than Sab Than. He was slightly put out at being detected, and commanded me to keep the matter to myself explaining that the passage from the tower led directly to his apartments, and was known only to him. If I can reach the roof of the barracks and get my machine, I can be in Sab Than's quarters in five minutes. But how am I to escape from this building, guarded as you say it is?" "'How well are the machine-sheds at the barracks guarded?' I asked. "'There is usually but one man on duty there at night upon the roof.' Go to the roof of this building, Kantos Khan, and wait me there." Without stopping to explain my plans, I retraced my way to the street and hastened to the barracks. I did not dare to enter the building, 
filled as it was with members of the Air Scout Squadron, who, in common with all Zodanga, were on the lookout for me. The building was an enormous one, rearing its lofty head fully a thousand feet into the air. But few buildings in Zodanga were higher than these barracks, though several topped it by a few hundred feet, the docks of the great battleships of the line standing some fifteen hundred feet from the ground, while the freight and passenger stations of the merchant squadrons rose nearly as high. It was a long climb up the face of the building, and one fraught with much danger, but there was no other way, and so I essayed the task. The fact that Barsoomian architecture is extremely ornate made the feat much simpler than I had anticipated, since I found ornamental ledges and projections which fairly formed a perfect ladder for me all the way to the eaves of the building. Here I met my first real obstacle. The eaves projected nearly twenty feet from the wall to which I clung, and though I encircled the great building I could find no opening through them. The top floor was alight, and filled with soldiers engaged in the pastimes of their kind. I could not, therefore, reach the roof through the building. There was one slight, desperate chance, and that I decided I must take. It was for Dejah Thoris, and no man has lived who would not risk a thousand deaths for such as she. Clinging to the wall with my feet and one hand, I unloosened one of the long leather straps of my trappings, at the end of which dangled a great hook by which air-sailors are hung to the sides and bottoms of their craft for various purposes of repair, and by means of which landing-parties are lowered to the ground from the battleships. I swung this hook cautiously to the roof several times, before it finally found lodgment. Gently I pulled on it to strengthen its hold but whether it would bear the weight of my body I did not know. It might be barely caught upon the very outer verge of the roof, so that as my body swung out at the end of the strap it would slip off and launch me to the pavement a thousand feet below. An instant I hesitated, and then, releasing my grasp upon the supporting ornament, I swung out into space at the end of the strap. Far below me lay the brilliantly lighted streets the hard pavements, and death. There was a little jerk at the top of the supporting eaves, and a nasty, slipping, grating sound which turned me cold with apprehension. Then the hook caught and I was safe. Clambering quickly aloft, I grasped the edge of the eaves and drew myself to the surface of the roof above. As I gained my feet I was confronted by the sentry on duty, into the muzzle of whose revolver I found myself looking. "'Who are you, and whence came you?' he cried. "'I am an air-scout, friend, and very near a dead one, for just by the merest chance I escaped falling to the avenue below,' I replied. "'But how came you upon the roof, man? No one has landed or come up from the building for the past hour. Quick, explain yourself, or I call the guard.' Look here, sentry, and you shall see how I came and how close a shave I had to not coming at all," I answered, turning toward the edge of the roof, where, twenty feet below, at the end of my strap, hung all my weapons. The fellow, acting on impulse of curiosity, stepped to my side, and to his undoing, for as he leaned to peer over the eaves I grasped him by his throat and his pistol-arm and threw him heavily to the roof. 
The weapon dropped from his grasp, and my fingers choked off his attempted cry for assistance. I gagged and bound him, and then hung him over the edge of the roof as myself had hung a few moments before. I knew it would be morning before he would be discovered, and I needed all the time that I could gain. Donning my trappings and weapons, I hastened to the sheds, and soon had out both my machine and Canto's cans. Making his fast behind me, I started my engine, and skimming over the edge of the roof, I dove down into the streets of the city far below, the plain usually occupied by the air patrol. In less than a minute I was settling safely upon the roof of our apartment beside the astonished Canto's can. I lost no time in explanation, but plunged immediately into a discussion of our plans for the immediate future. It was decided that I was to try to make helium, while Canto's can was to enter the palace and dispatch Sab Than. If successful, he was then to follow me. He set my compass for me, a clever little device which will remain steadfastly fixed upon my given point on the surface of Barsoom, and bidding each other farewell we rose together and sped in the direction of the palace which lay in the route which I must take to reach Helium. As we neared the high tower a patrol shot down from above, throwing its piercing searchlight full upon my craft, and a voice roared out a command to halt, following with a shot as I paid no attention to his hail. Canto's can dropped quickly into the darkness, while I rose steadily and at terrific speed raced through the Martian sky, followed by a dozen of the air-scout craft which had joined the pursuit, and later by a swift cruiser carrying a hundred men and a battery of rapid-fire guns. By twisting and turning my little machine, now rising and now falling, I managed to elude their searchlights most of the time, but I was also losing ground by these tactics, and so I decided to hazard everything on a straightaway course and leave the result to fate and the speed of my machine. Canto's can had showed me a trick of gearing, which is known only to the navy of helium, that greatly increased the speed of our machines, so that I felt sure I could distance my pursuers if I could dodge their projectiles for a few moments. As I sped through the air, the screeching of bullets around me convinced me that only by a miracle could I escape, but the die was cast, and throwing on full speed I raced a straight course toward Helium. Gradually I left my pursuers further and further behind, and I was just congratulating myself on my lucky escape when a well-directed shot from the cruiser exploded at the prow of my little craft. The concussion nearly capsized her, and with a sickening plunge she hurtled downward through the dark night. How far I fell before I regained control of the plane I do not know, but I must have been very close to the ground when I started to rise again, as I plainly heard the squealing of animals below me. Rising again I scanned the heavens for my pursuers, and finally making out their lights far behind me saw that they were landing, evidently, in search of me. Not until their lights were no longer discernible did I venture to flash my little lamp upon my compass, and then I found to my consternation that a fragment of the projectile had utterly destroyed my only guide, as well as my speedometer. 
It was true I could follow the stars in the general direction of helium, but without knowing the exact location of the city, or the speed at which I was traveling, my chances for finding it were slim. Helium lies a thousand miles southwest of Zodanga, and with my compass intact I should have made the trip, barring accidents, in between four and five hours. As it turned out, however, morning found me speeding over a vast expanse of dead sea-bottom after nearly six hours of continuous flight at high speed. Presently a great city showed below me, but it was not helium, as that alone of all Barsoomian metropolises consists in two immense circular walled cities about seventy-five miles apart, and would have been easily distinguishable from the altitude at which I was flying. Believing that I had come too far to the north and west, I turned back in a southeasterly direction, passing, during the forenoon, several other large cities, but none resembling the description which Cantos Can had given me of helium. In addition to the twin city formation of helium, another distinguishing feature is the two immense towers, one of vivid scarlet, rising nearly a mile into the air from the center of one of the cities while the other, of bright yellow and of the same height, marks her sister. CHAPTER Twenty Four, TARS TARKAS FINDS A FRIEND About noon I passed low over a great dead city of ancient Mars, and as I skimmed out across the plain beyond I came full upon several thousand green warriors engaged in a terrific battle. Scarcely had I seen them than a volley of shots was directed at me, and with the almost unfailing accuracy of their aim my little craft was instantly a ruined wreck, sinking erratically to the ground. I fell almost directly in the center of the fierce combat, among warriors who had not seen my approach, so busily were they engaged in life-and-death struggles. The men were fighting on foot with long-swords while an occasional shot from a sharpshooter on the outskirts of the conflict would bring down a warrior who might for an instant separate himself from the entangled mass. As my machine sank among them I realized that it was fight or die, with good chances of dying in any event, and so I struck the ground with drawn longsword ready to defend myself as I could. I fell beside a huge monster who was engaged with three antagonists, and as I glanced at his fierce face, filled with the light of battle, I recognized Tars Tarkas the Thark. He did not see me, as I was a trifle behind him, and just then the three warriors opposing him, and whom I recognized as Warhoons, charged simultaneously. The mighty fellow made quick work of one of them, but in stepping back for another thrust he fell over a dead body behind him, and was down and at the mercy of his foes in an instant. Quick as lightning they were upon him, and Tars Tarkas would have been gathered to his fathers in short order had I not sprung before his prostrate form and engaged his adversaries. I had accounted for one of them when the mighty Thark regained his feet and quickly settled the other. He gave me one look, and a slight smile touched his grim lip, as, touching my shoulder, he said, "'I would scarcely recognize you, John Carter but there is no other mortal upon Barsoom who would have done what you have done for me. I think I have learned that there is such a thing as friendship, my friend." He said no more, 
nor was there opportunity, for the Warhoons were closing in about us, and together we fought, shoulder to shoulder, during all that long, hot afternoon, until the tide of battle turned and the remnant of the fierce Warhoon horde fell back upon their thoats and fled into the gathering darkness. Ten thousand men had been engaged in that titanic struggle, and upon the field of battle lay three thousand dead. Neither side asked or gave quarter, nor did they attempt to take prisoners. On our return to the city after the battle we had gone directly to Tars Tarkas' quarters, where I was left alone while the chieftain attended the customary council which immediately follows an engagement. As I sat awaiting the return of the green warrior, I heard something move in an adjoining apartment, and as I glanced up there rushed suddenly upon me a huge and hideous creature which bore me backward upon the pile of silks and furs upon which I had been reclining. It was Woola, faithful, loving Woola. He had found his way back to Thark, and, as Tars Tarkas later told me, had gone immediately to my former quarters where he had taken up his pathetic and seemingly hopeless watch for my return. "'Dalhagis knows that you are here, John Carter,' said Tars Tarkas, on his return from the Jeddak's quarters. "'Sarkoja saw and recognized you as we were returning. Dalhagis has ordered me to bring you before him to-night. I have ten thoats, John Carter. You may take your choice from among them and I will accompany you to the nearest waterway that leads to Helium. Tars Tarkas may be a cruel green warrior, but he can be a friend as well. Come, we must start." "'And when you return, Tars Tarkas?' I asked. "'The wild Kalots, possibly, or worse,' he replied. "'Unless I should chance to have the opportunity I have so long waited of battling with Tal Hajis. We will stay, Tars Tarkas, and see Talhajus to-night. You shall not sacrifice yourself, and it may be that to-night you can have the chance you wait." He objected strenuously, saying that Talhajus often flew into wild fits of passion at the mere thought of the blow I had dealt him, and that if ever he laid his hands upon me I would be subjected to the most horrible tortures. While we were eating, I repeated to Tars Tarkas the story which Sola had told me that night upon the sea-bottom during the march to Thark. He said but little, but the great muscles of his face worked in passion, and in the agony at recollection of the horrors which had been heaped upon the only thing he had ever loved in all his cold, cruel, and terrible existence. He no longer demurred when I suggested that we go before Talhajis only saying that he would like to speak to Sarkoja first. At his request I accompanied him to her quarters, and the look of venomous hatred she cast upon me was almost adequate recompense for any future misfortunes this accidental return to Thark might bring me. "'Sarkoja,' said Tars Tarkas, forty years ago you were instrumental in bringing about the torture and death of a woman named Gozava. I have just discovered that the warrior who loved that woman has learned of your part in the transaction. He may not kill you, Sarkoja, it is not our custom. But there is nothing to prevent him tying one end of a strap about your neck and the other end to a wild throat, 
merely to test your fitness to survive and help perpetuate our race. Having heard that he would do this on the morrow, I thought it only right to warn you, for I am a just man. The river Is is but a short pilgrimage, Sarkoja. Come, John Carter." The next morning Sarkoja was gone, nor was she ever seen after. In silence we hastened to the Jeddak's palace, where we were immediately admitted to his presence. In fact, he could scarcely wait to see me, and was standing erect upon his platform, glowering at the entrance as I came in. "'Strap him to that pillar!' he shrieked. "'We shall see who it is dare strike the mighty Tal Hajus. Heat the irons. With my own hands I shall burn the eyes from his head, that he may not pollute my person with his vile gaze.' "'Chieftains of Thark!' I cried, turning to the assembled council and ignoring Tal Hajus. I have been a chief among you, and to-day I have fought for Thark, shoulder to shoulder, with her greatest warrior. You owe me at least a hearing. I have won that much to-day. You claim to be a just people." "'Silence!' roared Tal Hajus. "'Gag the creature, and bind him as I command.' "'Justice, Tal Hajus!' exclaimed Lorquas Tomel. Who are you to set aside the customs of ages among the Tharks? Yes, justice, echoed a dozen voices. And so, while Tal Hajus fumed and frothed, I continued. You are a brave people, and you love bravery. But where was your mighty Jeddak during the fighting today? I did not see him in the thick of battle. He was not there. He rends defenseless women and little children in his lair, but how recently has one of you seen him fight with men? Why, even I, a midget beside him, felled him with a single blow of my fist. Is it of such that the Tharks fashion their jeddaks? There stands beside me now a great Thark, a mighty warrior and a noble man. Chieftains, how sounds Tars Tarkas, jeddak of Thark! A roar of deep-toned applause greeted this suggestion. It but remains for this council to command, and Tal Hajus must prove his fitness to rule. Were he a brave man, he would invite Tars Tarkas to combat, for he does not love him, but Tal Hajus is afraid. Tal Hajus, your Jeddak, is a coward. With my bare hands I could kill him, and he knows it. After I ceased there was tense silence, as all eyes were riveted upon Tal Hajus. He did not speak or move, but the blotchy green of his countenance turned livid, and the froth froze upon his lips. "'Tal Hajus,' said Lorquas Tomel in a cold, hard voice, "'never in my long life have I seen a Jeddak of the Thark so humiliated. There could be but one answer to this arraignment.' We wait it." And still Talhajus stood, as though electrified. "'Chieftains,' continued Lorcas Tomel, "'shall the Jeddak Talhajus prove his fitness to rule over Tars Tarkas?' There were twenty chieftains about the rostrum, and twenty swords flashed high in assent. There was no alternative. The decree was final and so Tal Hajus drew his long-sword and advanced to meet Tars Tarkas. The combat was soon over, 
and with his foot upon the neck of the dead monster, Tars Tarkas became Jeddak among the Tharks. His first act was to make me a full-fledged chieftain with the rank I had won by my combats the first few weeks of my captivity among them. Seeing the favorable disposition of the warriors towards Tars Tarkas as well as toward me, I grasped the opportunity to enlist them in my cause against Zodanga. I told Tars Tarkas the story of my adventures, and in a few words had explained to him the thought I had in mind. "'John Carter has made me a proposal,' he said, addressing the Council, "'which meets with my sanction. I shall put it to you briefly. Dejah Thoris, the Princess of Helium, who was our prisoner, is now held by the Jeddak of Zodanga, whose son she must wed to save her country from devastation at the hands of the Zodangan forces. John Carter suggests that we rescue her and return her to Helium. The loot of Zodanga would be magnificent, and I have often thought that had we an alliance with the people of Helium we could obtain sufficient assurance of sustenance to permit us to increase the size and frequency of our hatchings, and thus become unquestionably supreme among the green men of all Barsoom. What say you?" It was a chance to fight, an opportunity to loot, and they rose to the bait as a speckled trout to a fly. For Tharks they were wildly enthusiastic, and before another half-hour had passed twenty mounted messengers were speeding across dead sea-bottoms to call the hordes together for the expedition. In three days we were on the march towards Zodanga, one hundred thousand strong, as Tars Tarkas had been able to enlist the services of three smaller hordes on the promise of the great loot of Zodanga. At the head of the column I rode beside the great Thark, while at the heels of my mount trotted my beloved Wula. We travelled entirely by night, timing our marches so that we camped during the day at deserted cities where, even to the beasts, we were all kept indoors during the daylight hours. On the march, Tars Tarkas, through his remarkable ability and statesmanship, enlisted fifty thousand more warriors from various hordes, so that, ten days after we set out, we halted at midnight outside the great walled city of Zodanga, one hundred and fifty thousand strong. The fighting strength and efficiency of this horde of ferocious green monsters was equivalent to ten times their number of red men. Never in the history of Barsoom, Tars Tarkas told me, had such a force of green warriors marched to battle together. It was a monstrous task to keep even a semblance of harmony among them, and it was a marvel to me that we got them to the city without a mighty battle among themselves. But as we neared Zodanga, their personal quarrels were submerged by their greater hatred for the Red Men, and especially for the Zodangans, who had for years waged a ruthless campaign of extermination against the Green Men, directing special attention toward despoiling their incubators. Now that we were before Zodanga, the task of obtaining entry to the city devolved upon me and directing Tars Tarkas to hold his forces in two divisions out of earshot of the city, with each division opposite a large gateway, I took twenty dismounted warriors and approached one of the small gates that pierced the walls at short intervals. 
These gates have no regular guard, but are covered by sentries, who patrol the avenue that encircles the city just within the walls, as our metropolitan police patrol their beats. The walls of Zodanga are seventy-five feet in height and fifty feet thick. They are built of enormous blocks of carborundum, and the task of entering the city seemed to my escort of green warriors an impossibility. The fellows who had been detailed to accompany me were of one of the smaller hordes, and therefore did not know me. Placing three of them with their faces to the wall and arms locked, I commanded two more to mount to their shoulders, and a sixth I ordered to climb upon the shoulders of the upper two, the head of the topmost warrior towering over forty feet from the ground. In this way, with ten warriors, I built a series of three steps from the ground to the shoulders of the topmost man. Then, starting from a short distance behind them, I ran swiftly up from one tier to the next, and with a final bound from the broad shoulders of the highest I clutched the top of the great wall, and quietly drew myself to its broad expanse. After me I dragged six lengths of leather from an equal number of my warriors. These lengths we had previously fastened together, and passing one end to the topmost warrior, I lowered the other end cautiously over the opposite side of the wall toward the avenue below. No one was in sight, so lowering myself to the end of my leather strap I dropped the remaining thirty feet to the pavement below. I had learned from Kanto's Khan the secret of opening these gates, and in another moment my twenty great fighting men stood within the doomed city of Zodanga. I found to my delight that I had entered at the lower boundary of the enormous palace grounds. The building itself showed in the distance a blaze of glorious light, and on the instant I determined to lead a detachment of warriors directly within the palace itself, while the balance of the great horde was attacking the barracks of the soldiery. Dispatching one of my men to Tars Tarkas for a detail of fifty tharks, with word of my intentions, I ordered ten warriors to capture and open one of the great gates, while with the nine remaining I took the other. We were to do our work quietly. No shots were to be fired, and no general advance made until I had reached the palace with my fifty tharks. Our plans worked to perfection. The two sentries we met were dispatched to their fathers upon the banks of the lost sea of Chorus and the guards at both gates followed them in silence. End of chapter 24《Chapters 25 and 26 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs, read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Princess of Mars, Chapter 25 The Looting of Zodanga. As the great gate where I stood swung open, my fifty Tharks, headed by Tars Tarkas himself, rode in upon their mighty thoats. I led them to the palace walls, which I negotiated easily without assistance. Once inside, however, the gate gave me considerable trouble, but I finally was rewarded by seeing it swing upon its huge hinges 
and soon my fierce escort was riding across the gardens of the Jeddak of Zodanga. As we approached the palace I could see through the great windows of the first floor into the brilliantly illuminated audience chamber of Thancosis. The immense hall was crowded with nobles and their women, as though some important function was in progress. There was not a guard in sight without the palace, due, I presume, to the fact that the city and palace walls were considered impregnable, and so I came close and peered within. At one end of the chamber, upon massive golden thrones encrusted with diamonds, sat Thancosis and his consort, surrounded by officers and dignitaries of state. Before them stretched a broad aisle lined on either side with soldiery, and as I looked there entered this aisle at the far end of the hall, the head of a procession which advanced to the foot of the throne. First there marched four officers of the Jeddak's guard, bearing a huge salver on which reposed, upon a cushion of scarlet silk, a great golden chain with a collar and padlock at each end. Directly behind these officers came four others carrying a similar salver which supported the magnificent ornaments of a prince and princess of the reigning house of Zodanga. At the foot of the throne these two parties separated and halted, facing each other at opposite sides of the aisle. Then came more dignitaries and the officers of the palace and of the army. And finally two figures entirely muffled in scarlet silk, so that not a feature of either was discernible. These two stopped at the foot of the throne, facing Thancosis. When the balance of the procession had entered and assumed their stations, Thancosis addressed the couple standing before him. I could not hear his words, but presently two officers advanced and removed the scarlet robe from one of the figures, and I saw that Kantos Khan had failed in his mission, for it was Sab Than, Prince of Zodanga, who stood revealed before me. Thancosis now took a set of the ornaments from one of the salvers and placed one of the collars of gold about his son's neck, springing the padlock fast. After a few more words addressed to Sab Than, he turned to the other figure, from which the officers now removed the enshrouding silks, disclosing to my now comprehending view Dejah Thoris, Princess of Helium. The object of the ceremony was clear to me. In another moment Dejah Thoris would be joined forever to the Prince of Zodanga. It was an impressive and beautiful ceremony, I presume, but to me it seemed the most fiendish sight I had ever witnessed. And as the ornaments were adjusted upon her beautiful figure and her collar of gold swung open in the hands of Thancosis, I raised my long-sword above my head, and with a heavy hilt I shattered the glass of the great window and sprang into the midst of the astonished assemblage. With a bound I was on the steps of the platform beside Thancosis, and as he stood riveted with surprise I brought my long-sword down upon the golden chain that would have bound Dejah Thoris to another. In an instant all was confusion. A thousand drawn swords menaced me from every quarter and Sab Than sprang upon me with a jeweled dagger he had drawn from his nuptial ornaments. I could have killed him as easily as I might a fly, but the age-old custom of Barsoom stayed my hand, and grasping his wrist as the dagger flew toward my heart, 
I held him as though in a vice, and with my long sword pointed to the far end of the hall. "'Zodanga has fallen!' I cried. "'Look!' All eyes turned in the direction I had indicated, and there, forging through the portals of the entranceway, rode Tars Tarkas and his fifty warriors on their great thoats. A cry of alarm and amazement broke from the assemblage, but no word of fear, and in a moment the soldiers and nobles of Zodanga were hurling themselves upon the advancing Tharks. Thrusting Sab Than headlong from the platform, I drew Deja Thoris to my side. Behind the throne was a narrow doorway, and in this Than Kosis now stood facing me, with drawn longsword. In an instant we were engaged, and I found no mean antagonist. As we circled upon the broad platform, I saw Sab Than rushing up the steps to aid his father. But as he raised his hand to strike, Dejah Thoris sprang before him, and then my sword found the spot that made Sab Than Jeddak of Zodanga. As his father rolled dead upon the floor, the new Jeddak tore himself free from Dejah Thoris' grasp, and again we faced each other. He was soon joined by a quartet of officers, and with my back against a golden throne I fought once again for Dejah Thoris. I was hard-pressed to defend myself, and yet not strike down Sab Than, and with him my last chance to win the woman I loved. My blade was swinging with the rapidity of lightning as I sought to parry the thrusts and cuts of my opponents. Two I had disarmed, and one was down, when several more rushed to the aid of their new ruler and to avenge the death of the old. As they advanced there were cries of, The woman! The woman! Strike her down! It is her plot! Kill her! Kill her!" Calling to Dejah Thoris to get behind me, I worked my way toward the little doorway back of the throne, but the officers realized my intentions, and three of them sprang in behind me and blocked my chances for gaining a position where I could have defended Dejah Thoris against any army of swordsmen. The Tharks were having their hands full in the center of the room and I began to realize that nothing short of a miracle could save Dejah Thoris and myself, when I saw Tars Tarkas surging through the crowd of pygmies that swarmed about him. With one swing of his mighty longsword he laid a dozen corpses at his feet, and so he hewed a pathway before him until, in another moment, he stood upon the platform beside me, dealing death and destruction right and left. The bravery of the Zodangans was awe-inspiring, not one attempted to escape, and when the fighting ceased it was because only Tharks remained alive in the great hall, other than Dejah Thoris and myself. Sab Than lay dead beside his father, and the corpses of the flower of Zodangan nobility and chivalry covered the floor of the bloody shambles. My first thought when the battle was over was for Kantos Khan and leaving Dejah Thoris in charge of Tars Tarkas, I took a dozen warriors and hastened to the dungeons beneath the palace. The jailers had all left to join the fighters in the throne-room, so we searched the labyrinthine prison without opposition. I called Kantos Khan's name aloud in each new corridor and apartment, and finally I was rewarded by hearing a faint response. Guided by the sound we soon found him helpless in a dark recess. He was overjoyed at seeing me, 
and to know the meaning of the fight, faint echoes of which had reached his prison cell. He told me that the air patrol had captured him before he reached the high tower of the palace, so that he had not even seen Sab Than. We discovered that it would be futile to attempt to cut away the bars and chains which held him prisoner. So at his suggestion I returned to search the bodies on the floor above for keys to open the padlocks of his cell and of his chains. Fortunately, among the first I examined I found his jailer, and soon we had Cantos Can with us in the throne room. The sounds of heavy firing, mingled with shouts and cries, came to us from the city's streets. Antars Tarkas hastened away to direct the fighting without. Cantos Can accompanied him to act as guide, the green warriors commencing a thorough search of the palace for other Zodangans and for loot, and Dejah Thoris and I were left alone. She had sunk into one of the golden thrones, and as I turned to her she greeted me with a wan smile. "'Was there ever such a man?' she exclaimed. "'I know that Barsoom has never before seen your like. Can it be that all earthmen are as you? Alone, a stranger, hunted, threatened, persecuted, you have done in a few short months what in all the past ages of Barsoom no man has ever done joined together the wild hordes of the sea-bottoms, and brought them to fight as allies of a red Martian people." "'The answer is easy, Dejah Thoris,' I replied, smiling. "'It was not I who did it, it was love, love for Dejah Thoris, a power that would work greater miracles than this you have seen.' A pretty flush overspread her face, and she answered. You may say that now, John Carter, and I may listen, for I am free. And more still I have to say, ere it is again too late, I returned. I have done many strange things in my life, many things that wiser men would not have dared, but never in my wildest fancies have I dreamed of winning a Dejah Thoris for myself. For never had I dreamed that in all the universe dwelt such a woman as the Princess of Helium. That you are a princess does not abash me. But that you are you is enough to make me doubt my sanity, as I ask you, my princess, to be mine." He does not need to be abashed who so well knew the answer to his plea before the plea were made, she replied, rising and placing her dear hands upon my shoulders, so I took her in my arms and kissed her and thus, in the midst of a city of wild conflict, filled with the alarms of war, with death and destruction reaping their terrible harvest around her, did Dejah Thoris, princess of Helium, true daughter of Mars, the god of war, promise herself in marriage to John Carter, gentleman of Virginia. CHAPTER Twenty Six, THROUGH CARNAGE TO JOY some time later Tars Tarkas and Kantos Can returned to report that Zodanga had been completely reduced. Her forces were entirely destroyed or captured, and no further resistance was to be expected from within. Several battleships had escaped, but there were thousands of war and merchant vessels under guard of Thark warriors. The lesser hordes had commenced looting and quarreling among themselves. So it was decided that we would collect what warriors we could, 
man as many vessels as possible with Zodangan prisoners, and make for Helium without further loss of time. Five hours later we sailed from the roofs of the dock buildings with a fleet of two hundred and fifty battleships, carrying nearly one hundred thousand green warriors, followed by a fleet of transports with our thoats. Behind us we left the stricken city in the fierce and brutal clutches of some forty thousand green warriors of the lesser hordes. They were looting, murdering, and fighting amongst themselves. In a hundred places they had applied the torch, and columns of dense smoke were rising above the city as though to blot out from the eye of heaven the horrid sights beneath. In the middle of the afternoon we sighted the scarlet and yellow towers of Helium and a short time later a great fleet of Zodangan battleships rose from the camps of the besiegers without the city and advanced to meet us. The banners of Helium had been strung from stem to stern of each of our mighty craft, but the Zodangans did not need this sign to realize that we were enemies, for our great Martian warriors had opened fire upon them almost as they left the ground. With their uncanny marksmanship they raked the oncoming fleet with volley after volley. The twin cities of Helium, perceiving that we were friends, sent out hundreds of vessels to aid us, and then began the first real air battle I had ever witnessed. The vessels carrying our green warriors were kept circling above the contending fleets of Helium and Zodanga, since their batteries were useless in the hands of the Tharks, who, having no navy, have no skill in naval gunnery. Their small arm-fire, however, was most effective, and the final outcome of the engagement was strongly influenced, if not wholly determined, by their presence. At first the two forces circled at the same altitude, pouring broadside after broadside into each other. Presently a great hole was torn in the hull of one of the immense battle-craft from the Zodangan camp. With a lurch she turned completely over the little figures of her crew plunging, turning and twisting toward the ground a thousand feet below. Then, with sickening velocity, she tore after them, almost completely burying herself in the soft loam of the ancient sea-bottom. A wild cry of exultation arose from the Heliumite squadron, and with redoubled ferocity they fell upon the Zodangan fleet. By a pretty maneuver, two of the vessels of Helium gained a position above their adversaries, from which they poured upon them from their keel-bomb batteries a perfect torrent of exploding bombs. Then, one by one, the battleships of Helium succeeded in rising above the Zodangans, and in a short time a number of the beleaguering battleships were drifting hopeless wrecks toward the high scarlet tower of greater Helium. Several others attempted to escape, but they were soon surrounded by thousands of tiny individual flyers, and above each hung a monster battleship of helium, ready to drop boarding parties upon their decks. Within but little more than an hour from the moment the victorious Zodangan squadron had risen to meet us from the camp of the besiegers, the battle was over, and the remaining vessels of the conquered Zodangans were headed toward the cities of helium under prize crews. There was an extremely pathetic side to the surrender of these mighty flyers, the result of an age-old custom which demanded that surrender should be signalized 
by the voluntary plunging to earth of the commander of the vanquished vessel. One after another, the brave fellows, holding their colors high above their heads, leaped from the towering bows of their mighty craft to an awful death. Not until the commander of the entire fleet took the fearful plunge, thus indicating the surrender of the remaining vessels, did the fighting cease, and the useless sacrifice of brave men came to an end. We now signaled the flagship of Helium's navy to approach, and when she was within hailing distance I called out that we had the Princess Dejah Thoris on board, and that we wished to transfer her to the flagship that she might be taken immediately to the city. As the full import of my announcement bore in upon them, a great cry arose from the decks of the flagship, and a moment later the colors of the Princess of Helium broke from a hundred points upon her upper works. When the other vessels of the squadron caught the meaning of the signals flashed them, they took up the wild acclaim and unfurled their colors in the gleaming sunlight. The flagship bore down upon us and as she swung gracefully to and touched our side, a dozen officers sprang upon our decks. As their astonished gaze fell upon the hundreds of green warriors, who now came forth from the fighting shelters, they stopped aghast, but at sight of Kantos Khan, who advanced to meet them, they came forward, crowding about him. Dejah Thoris and I then advanced, and they had no eyes for other than her. She received them gracefully calling each by name, for they were men high in the esteem and service of her grandfather, and she knew them well. "'Lay your hands upon the shoulder of John Carter,' she said to them, turning toward me, "'the man to whom Helium owes her princess as well as her victory to-day.' They were very courteous to me, and said many kind and complimentary things. But what seemed to impress them most was that I had won the aid of the fierce Tharks in my campaign for the liberation of Dejah Thoris and the relief of Helium. "'You owe your thanks more to another man than to me,' I said, "'and here he is. Meet one of Barsoom's greatest soldiers and statesmen, Tars Tarkas, Jeddak of Thark.' With the same polished courtesy that had marked their manner toward me, they extended their greetings to the great Thark nor, to my surprise, was he much behind them in ease of bearing or in courtly speech. Though not a garrulous race, the Tharks are extremely formal, and their ways lend themselves amazingly well to dignified and courtly manners. Dejah Thoris went aboard the flagship, and was much put out that I would not follow, but as I explained to her, the battle was but partly won we still had the land forces of the besieging Zodangas to account for, and I would not leave Tars Tarkas until that had been accomplished. The commander of the naval forces of Helium promised to arrange to have the armies of Helium attack from the city in conjunction with our land attack, and so the vessels separated and Dejah Thoris was borne in triumph back to the court of her grandfather, Tardos Mors, Jeddak of Helium. In the distance lay our fleet of transports with the thoats of the green warriors where they had remained during the battle. Without landing stages it was to be a difficult matter to unload these beasts upon the open plain, but there was nothing else for it, and so we put out for a point about ten miles from the city and began the task. It was necessary to lower the animals to the ground in slings, 
and this work occupied the remainder of the day and half the night. Twice we were attacked by parties of Zodangan cavalry, but with little loss, however, and after darkness shut down, they withdrew. As soon as the last thoat was unloaded, Tars Tarkas gave the command to advance, and in three parties we crept upon the Zodangan camp from the north, the south, and the east. About a mile from the main camp we encountered their outposts, and as had been prearranged, accepted this as the signal to charge. With wild, ferocious cries, and amidst the nasty squealing of battle-enraged thoats, we bore down upon the Zodangans. We did not catch them napping, but found a well-entrenched battle-line confronting us. Time after time we were repulsed, until toward noon I began to fear for the result of the battle. The Zodangans numbered nearly a million fighting men, gathered from pole to pole, wherever stretched their ribbon-like waterways, while pitted against them were less than a hundred thousand green warriors. The forces from Helium had not arrived, nor could we receive any word from them. Just at noon we heard heavy firing all along the line between the Zodangans and the cities, and we knew then that our much-needed reinforcements had come. Again Tars Tarkas ordered the charge, and once more the mighty thoats bore their terrible riders against the ramparts of the enemy. At the same moment the battle-line of Helium surged over the opposite breastworks of the Zodangans, and in another moment they were being crushed as between two millstones. Nobly they fought, but in vain. The plain before the city became a veritable shambles ere the last Zodangan surrendered. But finally the carnage ceased, the prisoners were marched back to Helium, and we entered the greater city's gates a huge triumphal procession of conquering heroes. The broad avenues were lined with women and children, among which were the few men whose duties necessitated that they remain within the city during the battle. We were greeted with an endless round of applause, and showered with ornaments of gold, platinum, silver, and precious jewels. The city had gone mad with joy. My fierce tharks caused the wildest excitement and enthusiasm. Never before had an armed body of green warriors entered the gates of Helium, and that they came now as friends and allies filled the red men with rejoicing. That my poor services to Dejah Thoris had become known to the Heliumites was evidenced by the loud crying of my name, and by the loads of ornaments that were fastened upon me and my huge throat as we passed up the avenues to the palace, for even in the face of the ferocious appearance of Woola the populace pressed close about me. As we approached this magnificent pile we were met by a party of officers who greeted us warmly and requested that Tars Tarkas and his jeds, with the jeddaks and jeds of his wild allies, together with myself, dismount and accompany them to receive from Tardos Mors an expression of his gratitude for our services. At the top of the great steps leading up to the main portals of the palace stood the royal party, and as we reached the lower steps one of their number descended to meet us. He was an almost perfect specimen of manhood tall, straight as an arrow, superbly muscled, and with the carriage and bearing of a ruler of men. 
I did not need to be told that he was Tardos Mors, Jeddak of Helium. The first member of our party he met was Tars Tarkas, and his first words sealed forever the new friendship between the races. That Tardos Mors, he said earnestly, may meet the greatest living warrior of Barsoom is a priceless honor, but that he may lay his hand on the shoulder of a friend and ally is a far greater boon. Jeddak of Helium, returned Tars Tarkas, it has remained for a man of another world to teach the green warriors of Barsoom the meaning of friendship. To him we owe the fact that the hordes of Thark can understand you, that they can appreciate and reciprocate the sentiment so graciously expressed." Tardos Mors then greeted each of the green Jeddaks and Jeds, and to each spoke words of friendship and appreciation. As he approached me, he laid both hands upon my shoulders. "'Welcome, my son,' he said, "'that you are granted gladly, and without one word of opposition, the most precious jewel in all Helium, yes, on all Barsoom, is sufficient earnest of my esteem.' We were then presented to Morris Kajak, Jed of Lesser Helium, and father of Dejah Thoris. He had followed close behind Tardos Mors, and seemed even more affected by the meeting than had his father. He tried a dozen times to express his gratitude to me, but his voice choked with emotion and he could not speak. And yet he had, as I was to later learn, a reputation for ferocity and fearlessness as a fighter that was remarkable even upon warlike Barsoom. In common with all Helium, he worshipped his daughter, nor could he think of what she had escaped without deep emotion. End of chapter 26 Chapters 27 and 28 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Princess of Mars. Chapter 27 From Joy to Death. For ten days, the hordes of Thark and their wild allies were feasted and entertained and then, loaded with costly presents, and escorted by ten thousand soldiers of Helium commanded by Morris Kajak, they started on the return journey to their own lands. The Jed of Lesser Helium with a small party of nobles accompanied them all the way to Thark to cement more closely the new bonds of peace and friendship. Sola also accompanied Tars Tarkas, her father, who before all his chieftains had acknowledged her as his daughter. Three weeks later, Mors Kajak and his officers, accompanied by Tars Tarkas and Sola, returned upon a battleship that had been dispatched to Thark to fetch them in time for the ceremony which made Dejah Thoris and John Carter one. For nine years I served in the councils and fought in the armies of Helium as a prince of the house of Tardos Mors. The people seemed never to tire of heaping honors upon me 
and no day passed that they did not bring some new proof of their love for my princess, the incomparable Dejah Thoris. In a golden incubator upon the roof of our palace lay a snow-white egg. For nearly five years ten soldiers of the Jeddak's guard had constantly stood over it, and not a day passed when I was in the city that Dejah Thoris and I did not stand hand in hand before our little shrine planning for the future, when the delicate shell should break. Vivid in my memory is the picture of the last night as we sat there talking in low tones of the strange romance which had woven our lives together, and of this wonder which was coming to augment our happiness and fulfill our hopes. In the distance we saw the bright white light of an approaching airship, but we attached no special significance to so common a sight. Like a bolt of lightning it raced toward helium until its very speed bespoke the unusual. Flashing the signals which proclaimed it a dispatch-bearer for the Jeddak, it circled impatiently, awaiting the tardy patrol-boat which must convoy it to the palace docks. Ten minutes after it touched at the palace a message called me to the council chamber, which I found filling with the members of that body. On the raised platform of the throne was Tardos Mors, pacing back and forth with tense-drawn face. When all were in their seats he turned toward us. "'This morning,' he said, "'word reached the several governments of Barsoom that the keeper of the atmosphere plant had made no wireless report for two days, nor had almost ceaseless calls upon him from a score of capitals elicited a sign of response. The ambassadors of the other nations asked us to take the matter in hand and hasten the assistant keeper to the plant. All day a thousand cruisers have been searching for him, until just now one of them returns bearing his dead body, which was found in the pits beneath this house horribly mutilated by some assassin. I do not need to tell you what this means to Barsoom. It would take months to penetrate those mighty walls. In fact, the work has already commenced and there would be little to fear were the engine of the pumping plant to run as it should, and as they all have for hundreds of years now. But the worst, we fear, has happened. The instruments show a rapidly decreasing air pressure on all parts of Barsoom. The engine has stopped. My gentlemen, he concluded, we have at best three days to live. There was absolute silence for several minutes and then a young noble arose, and with his drawn sword held high above his head, addressed Tardos Mors. The men of Helium have prided themselves that they have ever shown Barsoom how a nation of red men should live. Now is our opportunity to show them how they should die. Let us go about our duties as though a thousand useful years still lay before us." The chamber rang with applause and as there was nothing better to do than to allay the fears of the people by our example, we went our ways with smiles upon our faces, and sorrow gnawing at our hearts. When I returned to my palace I found that the rumour had already reached Dejah Thoris, so I told her all that I had heard. "'We have been happy, John Carter,' she said, "'and I thank whatever fate overtakes us that it permits us to die together.' The next two days brought no noticeable change in the supply of air, but on the morning of the third day breathing became difficult at the higher altitudes of the rooftops. 
The avenues and plazas of Helium were filled with people. All business had ceased. For the most part the people looked bravely into the face of their unalterable doom. Here and there, however, men and women gave way to quiet grief. Toward the middle of the day many of the weaker commenced to succumb, and within an hour the people of Barsoom were sinking by thousands into the unconsciousness which precedes death by asphyxiation. Deja Thoris and I, with the other members of the royal family, had collected in a sunken garden within an inner courtyard of the palace. We conversed in low tones, when we conversed at all, as the awe of the grim shadow of death crept over us. Even Woola seemed to feel the weight of the impending calamity, for he pressed close to Deja Thoris and to me, whining pitifully. The little incubator had been brought from the roof of our palace at the request of Deja Thoris, and now she sat, gazing longingly, upon the unknown little life that now she would never know. As it was becoming perceptibly difficult to breathe, Tardos Mors arose, saying, Let us bid each other farewell. The days of the greatness of Barsoom are over. Tomorrow's sun will look down upon a dead world which, through all eternity, must go swinging through the heavens, peopled not even by memories. It is the end." He stooped and kissed the women of his family, and laid his strong hand upon the shoulders of the men. As I turned sadly from him, my eyes fell upon Deja Thoris. Her head was drooping upon her breast, to all appearances she was lifeless. With a cry I sprang to her and raised her in my arms. Her eyes opened and looked into mine. "'Kiss me, John Carter,' she murmured. "'I love you. I love you. It is cruel that we must be torn apart who were just starting upon a life of love and happiness.' As I pressed her dear lips to mine the old feeling of unconquerable power and authority rose in me. The fighting blood of Virginia sprang to life in my veins. It shall not be, my princess, I cried. There is, there must be some way, and John Carter, who has fought his way through a strange world for love of you, will find it. And with my words there crept above the threshold of my conscious mind a series of nine long-forgotten sounds. Like a flash of lightning in the darkness their full purport dawned upon me. The key to the three great doors of the atmosphere plant. Turning suddenly toward Tardos Mors, as I still clasped my dying love to my breast, I cried, "'A flyer, Jeddak! Quick! Order your swiftest flyer to the palace top! I can save Barsoom yet!' He did not wait to question, but in an instant a guard was racing to the nearest dock, and though the air was thin and almost gone at the rooftop, they managed to launch the fastest, one-man, air-scout machine that the skill of Barsoom had ever produced. Kissing Deja Thoris a dozen times and commanding Woola, who would have followed me to remain and guard her, I bounded with my old agility and strength to the high ramparts of the palace, and in another moment I was headed toward the goal of the hopes of all Barsoom. I had to fly low to get sufficient air to breathe, but I took a straight course across an old sea-bottom and so had to rise only a few feet above the ground. I travelled with awful velocity for my errand was a race against time with death. The face of Dejah Thoris hung always before me, 
As I turned for a last look as I left the palace garden, I had seen her stagger and sink upon the ground beside the little incubator. That she had dropped into the last coma which would end in death if the air supply remained unreplenished, I well knew. And so, throwing caution to the winds, I flung overboard everything but the engine and compass, even to my ornaments, and lying on my belly along the deck with one hand on the steering-wheel and the other pushing the speed-lever to its last notch, I split the thin air of dying Mars with the speed of a meteor. An hour before dark the great walls of the atmosphere plant loomed suddenly before me, and with a sickening thud I plunged to the ground before the small door which was withholding the spark of life from the inhabitants of an entire planet. Beside the door a great crew of men had been laboring to pierce the wall, but they had scarcely scratched the flint-like surface, and now most of them lay in the last sleep from which not even air would awaken them. Conditions seemed much worse here than at Helium, and it was with difficulty that I breathed at all. There were a few men still conscious, and to one of these I spoke. "'If I can open these doors, is there a man who can start the engines?' I asked. I can, he replied, if you open quickly. I can last but a few moments more. But it is useless. They are both dead, and no one else upon Barsoom knew the secret of these awful locks. For three days men, crazed with fear, have surged about this portal in vain attempts to solve its mystery. I had no time to talk. I was becoming very weak and it was with difficulty that I controlled my mind at all. But with a final effort, as I sank weakly to my knees, I hurled the nine thought-waves at that awful thing before me. The Martian had crawled to my side, and with staring eyes fixed on the single panel before us, we waited in the silence of death. Slowly the mighty door receded before us. I attempted to rise and follow it, but I was too weak. After it, I cried to my companion, and if you reach the pump-room, turn loose all the pumps. It is the only chance Barsoom has to exist to-morrow. From where I lay, I opened the second door, and then the third, and as I saw the hope of Barsoom crawling weakly on hands and knees through the last doorway, I sank unconscious upon the ground. Chapter 28 At the Arizona Cave it was dark when I opened my eyes again. Strange, stiff garments were upon my body, garments that cracked and powdered away from me as I rose to a sitting posture. I felt myself over from head to foot, and from head to foot I was clothed, though when I fell unconscious at the little doorway I had been naked. Before me was a small patch of moonlit sky, which showed through a ragged aperture. As my hands passed over my body they came in contact with pockets, and in one of these a small parcel of matches wrapped in oiled paper. One of these matches I struck, and its dim flame lighted up what appeared to be a huge cave, toward the back of which I discovered a strange, still figure, huddled over a tiny bench. As I approached it, I saw that it was the dead and mummified remains of a little old woman with long black hair, and the thing it leaned over was a small charcoal burner 
upon which rested a round copper vessel containing a small quantity of greenish powder. Behind her, depending from the roof upon rawhide thongs and stretching entirely across the cave, was a row of human skeletons. From the thong which held them stretched another to the dead hand of the little old woman. As I touched the cord, the skeleton swung to the motion with a noise as of the rustling of dry leaves. It was a most grotesque and horrid tableau, and I hastened out into the fresh air, glad to escape from so gruesome a place. The sight that met my eyes, as I stepped out upon a small ledge which ran before the entrance of the cave, filled me with consternation. A new heaven and a new landscape met my gaze. The silvered mountains in the distance, the almost stationary moon hanging in the sky, the cacti-studded valley below me were not of Mars. I could scarcely believe my eyes, but the truth slowly forced itself upon me. I was looking upon Arizona, from the same ledge from which ten years before I had gazed with longing upon Mars. Bearing my head in my arms I turned, broken and sorrowful, down the trail from the cave. Above me shone the red eye of Mars, holding her awful secret, forty-eight million miles away. Did the Martian reach the pump-room? Did the vitalizing air reach the people of that distant planet in time to save them? Was my Dejah Thoris alive, or did her beautiful body lie cold in death? beside the tiny golden incubator in the sunken garden of the inner courtyard of the palace of Tardos Mors, the Jeddak of Helium. For ten years I have waited and prayed for an answer to my questions. For ten years I have waited and prayed to be taken back to the world of my lost love. I would rather lie dead beside her there than live on earth all those millions of terrible miles from her. The old mine, which I found untouched, has made me fabulously wealthy. But what care I for wealth? As I sit here tonight in my little study overlooking the Hudson, just twenty years have elapsed since I first opened my eyes upon Mars. I can see her shining in the sky through the little windows by my desk, and tonight she seems calling to me again, as she has not called before since that long dead night and I think I can see, across that awful abyss of space, a beautiful black-haired woman standing in the garden of a palace, and at her side is a little boy who puts his arm around her as she points into the sky toward the planet Earth, while at their feet is a huge and hideous creature with a heart of gold. I believe that they are waiting there for me and something tells me that I shall soon know. The End of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill.